Hey you, wake up. Are you bored on watch? Join your host, JB, for another episode of The Ship's Log. These interviews are so salty, you'll get high blood pressure. Tell me some sea stories. Thank you very much for joining us on another episode of the Ship's Log Podcast. It is the Christmas season right now, so Merry Christmas to everybody out there listening to this, even if it's after Christmas. I love the Christmas season. Spent many years not getting to celebrate Christmas. There's going to be a lot of Mariners out there, especially this year, that aren't going to be able to be home with their families. So, um, you know, if you're out there, just send special thoughts, blessings, prayers their way. Um, you know, just think about the seafarers that are going to be out there. And it's just going to be another day of work for them at sea or in the harbor, wherever they're going to be. So uh, this episode is dedicated to the seafarers out there who do not get to be with their families. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Rainwater Dentistry, a specialist in TMJ and face pain disorders, helping patients in Houston, Texas and the surrounding Gulf Coast. Go to RainwaterDentistry.com for more information. And uh, it's also brought to you by the big boss lady, producer Ken, Captain Pegleg, leader of the Global Guild of Freed Pirates. Thank you very much for contributing to the Patreon uh, subscribership. Thank you very much. That's uh, one of the things that helps the podcast keep going. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much. Um, If you want to contact the podcast, you can find us at theshipslogpodcast at gmail.com. That's the ship's log podcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook at JB Salty. And I'm on Twitter too, but that's, you got to search for it. You got to earn that one. Uh, all right. I'm joined today by Special K. How'd you get that name? Uh, kind of funny how that happened. Growing up, we used to go hang out at one of our friends' house, and it was a, a house full of three bachelors. So the guys were in their 20s. And, uh, <clears throat> we used to hang out. Him and I both had one of the guys had the same name, so they called him Big K, and they called me Special K. And uh, we we're about ten years apart. We used to go to their party all the time. So they lived right on the water, so it was a really, really good time. They uh, they looked after us, took care of us, made sure we drank too much. We didn't go anywhere. And, uh, used to have a lot of fun. We used to have parties every Fourth of July. <laughs> One of the funny things that I remember distinctly about that was they decided to get these tricycles from the neighbor's yard. And uh, these are all big guys, about between 6 and 6'5", six, over 300 pounds. I mean, I'm talking about large guys. And to see 300 and some odd pound guys drunk racing from keg to keg in the street on tricycles is just the greatest thing ever. If you've never seen it, I highly recommend it. Hell yeah, man. So where'd you grow up, and uh, where where do you come from? So the first seven or eight years of my life, I grew up in Baltimore City as the only child to two people who should have never had children. And uh, it was an interesting time living in Baltimore City because I was the only white guy there. I used to have to walk two blocks to my Catholic school, and I... I got my ass whipped every day to and from and it it definitely helped me out later in life but it uh 
it was fun. So my parents finally got tired of it and moved to Baltimore County. Uh, moved to this place called uh, Fort Howard, which was right next to Miller's Island. It's literally like a five minute drive. And I spent from there until about the age of 21. Damn, so is that still close to Baltimore? Yeah, everything, everything is like within 15 minutes of Baltimore City. From where I was in Fort Howard, it was about 15 minutes to the city line. Damn. Which the city line was right there at the Port of Baltimore. No shit. So that's how you went in there. So when you say Baltimore City, you mean like the city of Baltimore, Maryland, right? Yes, you have the city, you have Baltimore City, and then you have Baltimore County. We moved to Baltimore County, and we would drive to the city, which is, I love Baltimore City, but it, it's just not for me anymore. I couldn't, after being a Texan for the better part of 10 years, I could never move back there. What, what's it like? What's so different about Baltimore? You ever been to Third Ward? Yeah. yeah. It's a lot like that. Okay. It's dangerous. It's dirty. When they show you pictures of it, they're showing you pictures of the city, the, the center of the city on the water. That is the not even the safest part anymore, but it used to be. And that's where all the real pretty pavilions are with all the restaurants and all the shopping and the science center and the aquarium. It looks really pretty. But when you get inside there, it's like being in Third Ward. Yeah. <laughs> kind of funny, the Coast Guard house... They call it the Customs House, and uh, it's three or four blocks. It's on Gay Street, but it's three or four blocks away from all those pavilions. And you can tell where that line is, where it gets bad. And literally around the corner from there, they have something called the Block. Okay. The Block, you've never been to Piney Point. You've heard of this, or at least know somebody who's been there. Yeah. So the Block... It's loaded with strip clubs, and they're really, really, really shady. Okay. So there's guys out front of them. It's like walking down the street in, like, Thailand or something, where they're trying to, you know, sell their goods, trying to get mm -hmm. you inside. And they'll offer you anything to get you inside, and pretty much anything goes there. Funny thing is, there's a police station right there. No but shit. Apparently, everybody's just oblivious to it. Nobody cares. The cops don't care. They just let it go on, mm -hmm. huh? Well, I think the cops are stopping in, too, after work. <laughs> But though, yeah, I mean, anything goes in there. Like Chris Rock said there's no sex in the champagne room. You've never been to Baltimore. Damn. So, you know, Baltimore to me, you know, I've been out. I went to the christening of a ship one time. I think it was the uh, ARC Resolve or something like that. One of those uh, tote car carriers. Mm -hmm. Well, they say tote, ARC, whatever. And it was down in the harbor. I was real young, man. I, I was 18, barely 18 years old. And the city was like it definitely struck me as being very dangerous. It, you know the guy the guy who drove us around. His name was Larry. God bless him. He was a really cool dude. He had just gotten out of the army and then he became a driver. And he was like, "Yeah, look, man. Uh, basically, I'm gonna go in the store real quick. You keep these doors locked. Don't open them for anybody. It's all a scam. Don't open the doors." And I was like, "Well, how dangerous is this fucking place?" You know? It's uh, it's incredibly dangerous if you're not from there or you. If you don't carry yourself a certain way, you're going to get jacked. Really? Yeah. It's If you ever seen The Wire, that is very, very realistic. Okay. There were drug dealers in the corners of where I live, and I knew them after a while. Mm -hmm. And after, you know, if you lived in the neighborhood, you were okay. They didn't really mess with you. I mean, you might get beat up.
Yeah. It was mainly they just kind of push you around. They might have punched you a couple times and they let you go. Then once you, you know, as you get. So they. That was the very first German Shepherd I ever encountered. One of the drug dealers on the corner had one. And he trained it to go fetch. Okay. So he'd throw the ball down the alley, the German Shepherd would take off and go fetch it. So eventually, he would let me stop and pet a German Shepherd, which was just fantastic. And that's where I fell in love with him. Really? Yeah. Okay. So you, you love German Shepherds. The drug dealer on the corner had one. Taught it to play fit. What well, did it ever bite anybody? No. I don't, I don't, I'm not even sure it was capable of biting somebody. Yeah. So it was pretty friendly. Yeah. It was incredibly friendly. It, it was more... It was more for intimidation factor. I don't think he had the dog there for protection. I honestly don't, because everybody used to walk up to him and pet him and would you know circle around you and get really excited that somebody was paying attention to. Him, yeah, which is great. It's you know the gun in the waistband that you know solves that problem. Yeah. So they weren't playing games. They were they were there to do their thing, but they weren't trying to like push drugs on school kids or anything, right? No, they would never sell to school kids. They, Interesting. In, in Baltimore, there's a code. Okay. There's a, a very strict code. There's no shooting on Sunday unless it's, you know, something real bad. There is none of that. There's no going after family. You're, if you're a civilian, they leave you as a civilian. But if you're in a game, you're, you're fair game. Yeah. And they, they would deal close to the school but they would never, they would never offer you drugs. You would actually, if you wanted drugs, of course they would never sell somebody who was in like third grade. No. You actually had to go up to them. You had to be of a certain age, and then they would actually sell you drugs. Mm-hmm. But as for kids now, there was none of that. Thing. You know, it's fascinating to me how even drug dealers or you know seafarers of old, you know, you hear the old stories. You know, every every group of people have their own code of ethics and morals, and uh, they live by it. And I find that to be fascinating, that no matter how, you know, like the average people would look at drug dealers as being the scum of the earth. However, you know, what from what you're telling me, in Baltimore, they've got this code. Yeah, there's a very strong code there when I was there. I'm not sure how it is now. Again, I haven't been there in years and years. So I, I don't know what's – I do know where I grew up. The uh, developers have really jumped in there. Okay. So where Canton is, which I grew up two blocks away from Canton, that is all cleaned up. There's there's even a Harris Teeter there. What's a Harris Teeter? Oh my God, Harris Teeter. That I, sounds like a dirty uh, a dirty move in the bedroom. So it's kind of like a it's kind of like a cross between Trader Joe's and Whole Foods. It is like like Yuppie Central. Okay. That is that is land of the Ugg boots right there. <laughs> that is where you will find Starbucks, Ugg Boots, uh, Mercedes. Just man, their, their prices are just incredible. But I couldn't afford to shop there on my salary. But uh, yeah, they they even put a, a pit beef there, which pit beef is is the Maryland's version of barbecue, and it's awful. Basically, you're just burning meat. Really? Yeah. It's all so it's kind of like tries to be barbecue, but is not really barbecue. Well, growing up, that's what we thought barbecue was. Basically, they take this big, huge roast and they put it on the on a pit and they roast it until it's medium well, and then they put it in a slicer and slice it super thin. And then they cover it with some uh, 
horseradish sauce, and that's what they call barbecue. Oh, hell no. So when I got to Texas, and I got enlightened into the barbecue culture, which is extensive and vast, I learned that, hey, that's not how you do that. Yeah. And it's, you know, people were asking me questions about back home because, you know, every, every area you go to is a little different, especially when it comes to barbecue, except for North Carolina. I don't understand why they like that mustard sauce, but if you're from North Carolina, bless your heart. But yeah, it. So getting into barbecue sauces, because I love barbecue, but I, I'm Texas through and through, and I'm I'm like if if I'm not in Texas, I'm not eating barbecue. So what are the different sauces? You got variations from Tennessee, Kansas City, you know, Oklahoma. Texas does its own thing, obviously, which is the best way. North Carolina is very famous for what they do. What what are the differences in, in mostly in sauces, right? So if you go to North Carolina, they're going to give you this mustard vinegar sauce. Okay. Which, don't get me wrong, it's not bad, but it's not great. That's just the way they choose to eat it, and they'll put it on sauces, they'll put it on beef, they'll put it on ribs, they put it on everything. And it is just, at least in my opinion, it's awful. I can't eat any more than maybe a half a sandwich before I got to stop. Mm. But if you go to Georgia, it's more of a sweet, smoky flavor, and it's it's still thin. Okay. Then Kansas City, like the sauce is thin. Yeah. Really okay. Thin. They water it down with uh, Coca-Cola, or uh, sometimes they even put. Uh, for some reason, they use that mess tea in a can. Okay. The, uh, the brisk iced tea. When we used to be able to get that. They'll put that in there. All it does is sweetens it up and thins it out. Okay. Because they're all about mopping. They love to mop. So they, they're taking the barbecue sauce and they're using like one of those little mop type things or a brush or something like that and they're just they're just putting it on there. Oh, dude, it's a straight up mop. All they do is cut the handle down. Oh, no shit. Yeah, it's a legit mop you get from Walmart. They cut it down and then they soak it to make sure there's no germs on it. Like it's, it's super sanitary the way mm -hmm. they do it. I actually boil it at one point. Okay. But it goes through this process, and then that's all it is anymore. It's just mop for that sauce. They don't mix the sauces. You don't mix the mop with a different sauces. One mop just for sauce. that sauce. And then they they don't they wash them, but they wash them in it's I want to say it's almost like the same thing they use at bars. Okay. Where they pour it. You know how you got the three sinks. Mm -hmm. I think I want to say that's what it is, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Okay. That's cool, man. You know, if, if you are a barbecue expert out there and you want to give us some pointers on barbecue, I would absolutely love to hear it because that's one of those things. Now, I'm a, I love beef ribs. My favorite barbecue food to eat is beef ribs. And it's one of those things where you go outside Texas and you, you just don't find it a whole lot. But there's nothing like eating beef ribs, man. Well, to be fair, as dirty tugboaters, we generally put anything in our mouth. <laughs> it's, hey, speaking of, so you're you're a dirty tugboater, as you say. What are your obviously to be on this podcast? You got to have something to do with the maritime industry. And here, I thought it was just my big dick energy. <laughs> hey, here on the Ship's Log podcast, we call it Big Deck Energy. By the way, I want to get some T-shirts made up or some ball caps or something to say Big Deck Energy for the Patreon subscribers. So, what are your experiences in the maritime industry? How'd you get into it? What's the backstory on that? So they kidnapped me one night at a grocery store, and I've been here ever since. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, I actually got a story about that. My father, this is what he did 
from the time that I can remember. Before that, he was a train conductor. And uh, Your old was, man was a tugboater? Yeah. Yeah, he worked for McAllister for many years. And uh, that's where he started out on the deck. Then he got a mate's license. Then they gave him a master's license. And this is back before all this testing. Like, they, they gave you a 20-question test, and they handed you a, a operator uninspected towing vessel license, which covered any tonnage. If you could tow with it, they covered it. No shit. So I remember going, I remember being young, still living in Baltimore City. I would go to work with them because we only lived maybe three or four minutes from the dock. So they would go to work from 7 in the morning until 7 at night. Sometimes they'd knock off early and they would come home. And then the company would page them if they got a job. Mm. And they would go to the boat, start the boat, and they would go do the job, and then they would come home at night. But during the day, they had to be there from 7 a.m. until usually 7 p.m. Hmm. So it was, since everybody lived closer, it wasn't that big of a deal. So my father would take me once in a while, back in the day when he could do this. So I would go with him, and I would just sit in the wheelhouse, and I would see how far the boat leaned over. And you talking about cowboys. Those guys were fearless back then. There were no rules. They even had beer in the fridge. And it was, when you're, when you're six or seven years old drinking warm Milwaukee's best because they won't let you drink out of the water fountain, that's saying something. <laughs> and to this day, I still don't drink Milwaukee's best. No shit. At all. I can't even stand the smell of it. Damn, I'm like that with Corona. I had a hot Corona when I was like 12 years old, and it just ruined Corona for me forever. I, I cannot drink Milwaukee's best. Hmm. So this is going to be kind of a long story. So at some point, my father and some of his co-workers decided they were going to buy a bar. And they bought this bar called Sarah Elliott's Pub. It's on Sarah Elliott Street in Baltimore City, right near where McCormick makes the spices. So anytime you went in there, as you're standing out front, you smelled all these great spices. Yeah. And it made you hungry. They served food and all that. And the beer was like, a, I don't know if you know anything about Baltimore City, but all the, all the houses and all the businesses, they're long. Okay. They're not wide, like down here. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, they're like, one big giant box, not their one big giant rectangle, and it was designed that way way back in the 1800s. So, <laughs> sorry, y'all. So, they did them in an old English style pub. It was all hardwood bars, very old, very antique, and you could probably get about uh, 30, 40 people up at the bar. And then you had tables on the other side, and then you had this narrow walkway. And then once you get towards the back, there was a step up into another part, which is like the restaurant area, which had like six or eight tables and this giant claw machine. Like for, uh, for stuffed animals and stuff? Yes. This is going to be very important here in a minute. They had this big giant claw machine, and the prize was if you picked this one tiny little bear out of this, this claw machine, you got the six-foot bear, which was almost unheard of back in the day. And for a child, that's what you want. Yeah. I wanted that bear. I wanted that bear desperately. I don't know why the old man just didn't give it to me as much money as I sank into that thing. <laughs> I cost him a fortune. But he just, uh, <laughs> he wouldn't give it to me. So, <laughs> one, one Thanksgiving, somehow, his engineer, a guy by the name of Fred, Fred was a very interesting man. He was from Virginia, and I'm pretty sure he was his own cousin. 
Fred had hooked up with these Russians. Where he found Russians at that point was beyond anybody. All we know is that he found some Russians. Like a bunch of them. That's how that's how a lot of good stories start out. There were Russians involved. The yeah, they were Russians and they didn't speak English. So he calls up my dad. We're all at the bar, we're having Thanksgiving. There was, you know, all three families were there. Some tugboat guys, some guys that uh, they had been in other trades with. It was, a, it was a pretty big party. We had the bar pretty much full. And, you know, of course, my dad, being who he was, he didn't, you know, he invites everybody to do everything. So Fred shows up with all these Russians. It, <laughs> it was funny because as soon as, the, as soon as they walked through the door, everything got real quiet. Like, who were these people? You could tell they were foreign just by the dress. Yeah. And then... One the were they all wearing track suits? Uh, this was before that. Okay. This was before they discovered Puma and Adidas. This is back. I mean, they all had the, the Russian-style hats. They had the Russian-style with the big collars, the Russian jackets with the big collars that came up. And it basically only see, like, the V-shape of where their mouth and nose is. So they're still dressing like it's the fucking frozen tundra. It was the frozen tundra. You ever been to Maryland when it's winter? No, I Holy never have. shit. Oh, my God. I'd rather slam my dick in a car than go back there during the winter. Yeah, I've been in southern Maryland in, like, October, and it was still pretty fucking cold. It's brutal. So we push some more tables together. The Russians sit down, and the captain of the, of the Russians... I'm going to put this microphone just a little bit closer to you. So the captain of the Russians stands up. He says a couple things in broken English to the effect of, we are very grateful to be here. Then he did a small bow, and he sat back down. So they had a bartender that night come in, and of course she ate with us and her family. She's you know helping get drinks. My mom's helping get drinks. So we're getting them. So then they figured out, somehow my dad, apparently when he gets drunk, speaks just enough Russian to conversate with the Russians, <laughs> who, whose English are getting stunningly better as they drink. So... About halfway through this adventure, they decide that they're going to trade. So they're trading cigarettes. In Maryland, you were allowed to sell cigarettes at the bar. So my dad grabbed a couple cartons and handed it to them. They, uh, they were very grateful, kept trying to offer money. And, you know, back then, cigarettes were like a dollar something a pack. So we were just amazed. So then they busted out this Russian vodka, which, unbeknownst to me, is uh, about a thousand poof. So they have this little coffee can. Of course, it had Russian writing on it. Well, in this coffee can was lard. Me, me being as young as I was, I didn't understand that. But I saw a very large bottle of a clear liquid and this coffee can of what looked like bacon grease. It may have been. I don't know. So I watched my dad watch this Russian take a two-finger scoop out, shove it in his mouth, swallow shoot that shot of vodka, and immediately chase it with another finger full of lard. So. That sounds disgusting. Oh, it gets better. This gets better. So the Americans, who are sitting on the other side of the table at this point in time, they try it. So Fred, who was already inebriated by this point, I'm sure he was inebriated long before he got there. He's the first one up, takes fingers full of lard, Shoves it in his mouth, takes that shot, slams it down, takes another finger pull, 
and he looks like he's holding his own. So they go down the line and finally get to my dad. He doesn't. My dad's very animated when he talks. Mm-hmm. He, it kind of, it's like looking at Bugs Bunny sometimes. Okay. And keep in mind, my dad's bigger than me. He's like 350 pounds, like six seven. God damn. Yeah, he's a he's a hoss of a man. So <laughs> Red, who we all thought was doing fairly well, just stands up, looks everybody around in the table. He's just kind of like eyeballing everybody around and just projectile vomits everywhere at the end of the table. And the Russians <laughs> are dying. They're laughing, you know, haha, American bellies, you know, blah blah blah. And us kids were laughing just as hard. Everybody was laughing. I felt bad for Fred. You know, later on in life, I kind of realized like that's not how you do things. Yeah. So everybody was laughing, and uh, <laughs> so we get uh we get further in the meal. So now we bring out steam crabs, which is in Maryland, we steam everything. Down here in Texas, everything gets boiled, mm-hmm. which is like a sacrifice. It's, it literally kills me every time I watch you guys like boil shrimp. So everything up there is steamed. So we had steamed shrimp. We had, of course, we had a turkey. We had steamed crabs. We had crab soup, crab bisque, uh, hush pub. I mean, it, it was a wild dinner. And the Russians didn't understand. It, all they saw was just this big, giant, hard shell sitting in front. They didn't know how to do anything with it. So the captain just takes a knife and stabs it, which... It was hilarious because I don't know if you know anything about steam crabs. If you if you stab it the wrong way, it explodes. No shit. Yeah, I I had no clue. All because it's it's all that water's trapped in there from the crab guts, mm-hmm. which it, it can actually accumulate a lot, and it's all under pressure because it's being steamed. Yeah. So if you stab like if you take a crab fresh out of the steamer and you stab it, you're gonna get juiced and it's gonna hurt because it's gonna be hot. Okay. So that's what he does. Burns the shit out of himself. So we're all, everybody's like picking a Russian as like a partner. So we have now used the money system. And we're showing them how to open this up and how to eat it. There's, and I'm sure the same thing happens here. You cannot eat the devil inside of the crab. It's the little things. Okay. Back home they call it the devil. Okay. Because you'll get really, really sick. Really? Oh yeah. You eat that part of the crab, you will get so sick. Your toilet may not survive. No shit. That's how bad it is. What, what makes people sick? I don't know. I think there's like some kind of toxin in it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what the science is behind it. But I just know if you eat it, like even when you get soft crabs and you bread them and fry them, you got to cut that part out. Okay. Like you got to lift the wings and cut them out. So, so yeah. So you got thread projectile vomiting. The captain of the ship burnt himself. Well, now we finally figure out what's going on. They want to take us to their tugs. They had two offshore tugs, which are gigantic. I was like, so these guys are seafarers. Yes. Oh, I had no clue. No, we didn't either. All we knew was that Fred found some Russians. That's all we knew. <laughs> we found some Russian. Well, Fred found some Russians, and we were having you know we were having dinner, breaking, having bread. a good old time. Which, and this is probably back during the uh, it was the 80s, the Soviet era. Yeah, so they're yeah. Soviets. Yeah, yeah, they were. See, I, you know, I have a theory on this, man, and my theory is that with most people around the world, right, unless they're like some kind of, you know, fucking extremist or something like that, with most people in the world, we have the same desires, we have the same wants, the same needs, and at the end of the day, if you just sit down and drink a fucking beer with somebody, 
you know, you're going to find that you probably have more in common than the news makes it out or you previously believed or what, whatever the case is. Well, I mean, it, it all comes down to politics of the time. It comes down to how much hate you have in your heart and what you've been told. Like, if you're being told that somebody's evil or a group of people are evil from the time you're born until adulthood, you're going to believe they're evil for no other reason than that's what you were told. Yeah. Eventually, hopefully, you'll reach the age of reason where you can make your own assumptions and your own decisions on groups of people or specific people. And coming from coming from Baltimore City, like you didn't, you loved everybody. You didn't have a choice because you were thrown in the mix. I mean, you had blacks, you had Asians, you had Jews. You, I mean, it was a melting pot. And that that was great. I loved it. Yeah. I was exposed to a lot of great things early on, like food, culture. Let's finish this story about the Russians, because I'm oh. really curious to know where this goes. So they decide they want to take us to their ship to do a tour, which is, you know, almost unheard of. Like, for the tub guys to go to another another country's boat was huge back then. I mean, you all went on the American boats, it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. But to go to another country's boat, that was huge. That was especially a Russian. Like, that was unheard of. Yeah. And my father talked about it for years and years after that. So we all pile into the vehicles. Keep in mind, all the adults are drunk. For the Sarah Elliott was actually closer to the dock than my house. So that was a three-minute drive. And we uh, get down there. And, you know, me being six, seven years old, these boats are gigantic. Yeah. They are huge. And they're, you know, they're telling me. They're offshore talent vessels. It's like the Alp Guard, the one that towed the rig out of Galveston. They were that big. No shit. And, you know, it was great. So I thought it was like a giant jungle gym. So they let the kids just run amok. Yeah. But the one thing the cat said Which is, is dangerous as fuck. In retrospect, yeah. <laughs> incredibly. But uh, in retrospect, yeah. But, uh, yeah, they just let us wander around. I mean, they had somebody with us. And every once in a while, you'd hear them say, you know, something in Russian, yeah. and then they would give you yes. like a hand sign. <laughs> uh, no, they never said that. They never told us no. Yeah. They would never tell us no, but what they would do is they would say something, and then they would give you a hand gesture. And that's how we understood them mm. most of the time. So we're down there, and we're wandering the boat, and are giving us this tour. And it's a big, gigantic engine room. You know, the wheelhouse is just amazingly huge. And it's, you know, being that young, it was a Super impressive. But the captain gave us one sign not to drink anything from the water fountain. Mm. He didn't want us drinking any of the water from any of the spigots or anything, and they didn't have bottled water. They carried coffee. That's all they drank. Oh. Yeah, so, I mean, we're already close to 9, 10 o'clock at night, so they don't, parents don't want us drinking coffee because they're already about to pass out. They've been drinking since, like, noon. Yeah. So the captain who had procured these cases of warm Milwaukee's best from my father, he uh, gave us one, and uh, that's what we were to drink. We didn't have bottled water. Bottled water, bottled water back then was almost unheard of. Didn't yeah, you? it was uh, the bottled water back then. Well, you're talking about the '80s. So I, I was I was born in '85. So. You know, I I don't remember the time you're talking about, but when I was a kid in the early 90s, the only bottled water I ever saw was like Perrier mineral water, which is fucking fantastic. 
in like Ozark, high end Ozarka, which was like, why are you going to buy that when there's water fountains everywhere? Well, I mean, you didn't have Ozarka. I mean, you had mineral water, you had sparkling water, but nobody ever drank it. Yeah. You know, it was reserved for the rich people who could afford it. You know, we were, we were poor tugboat trash back then. And I mean, granted, they made more money than most at the time, but you know, they were busy doing other things. Like drugs and alcohol. <laughs> it was a wild time back then, but yeah, we were drinking warm Milwaukee, warm Milwaukee's best on that, and I, to this day, I still can't drink it. That's a pretty cool story, man. So nobody knew these guys were Mariners whenever they showed up to the party, and at the end of it, it was like a, almost like some type of um, freestyle ambassador type stuff, you know? The like, drunker they got, the better the communication got. We stayed at that ship for three hours. That's cool, man. We were there till after midnight, and I distinctly remember the Russian captain. He pointed to me, and he made the symbol of, like, cradling a baby. Mm. And Like did. bedtime. No. He no. Just, just like, he, he, know, he knows that I was young and that this was all very fascinating to me. So he smiled real big, pointed to me, made the, made the cradle, and smiled at my mom. And mm. you know, everybody lit up because that was huge, like – that kind of communication, like everybody somehow knew what he meant. Yeah. But it was just one of those moments in time where it, now that I'm older, I can appreciate it and understand it more. But that was the communication. Yeah. They somehow managed to communicate without anybody speaking each other's language. Yeah. And given enough time, I guarantee both sides would learn the other's language. You know, one of the things I distinctly, they know what camels are. They know what Marlboro's are because in most of the rooms, because they showed us their state rooms. In most of the rooms, they had glued packs of American cigarettes to the wall. Really? They had American beer labels on the wall. Budweiser, uh, Coors Light, uh, Bush, uh, National Bohemian, which back home, that's a huge beer. They call it Matty Bill. It's like nine ninety nine a case, and that is the first thing you drink is a Maryland beer. Okay. Now, I've heard of it. If you're coming from Maryland, the first thing that you're ever going to drink is a Natty Bill. Hell yeah. And you better hold on to your panties because that is some rough shit. <laughs> you know, and, you know, it, it's so fascinating to me that he, – so here's this story. And when this story's going on, taking place, you're talking about these two countries have nuclear missiles aimed at each other. And here in Baltimore City on the waterfront, you've got two groups of people from these different nations who are coming together, drinking, eating, having a good time. Watching each other's kids run around a offshore tugboat—that's some cool shit, man. Well, profound. They're not. No matter what country you're from, the concept of family and responsibility is all the same. The Russians look after after all us kids just like they look their own, hmm. just like my parents would have looked after theirs. But that's one thing about this industry: like you don't, when you come in contact with things like that, because you're such a family, you don't really notice that you do it. Yeah. Like when I'm out with some of my coworkers that have kids, I feel myself constantly making sure that the kids are okay. Mm. Making sure that everybody's where they're supposed to be. Yeah. And we have an industry like no other. You will never find this anywhere else. You're not going to go pick up a plumbing trade or an electrical trade or a crane operating trade where it's going to be like this. You have to rely on each other, and there is no choice. Yeah, there's a um, 
there's a strange bond, even with people that are just acquaintances. And, you know, the other day, I, like, I've got my wife and I, we've got this uh, this guy redoing our bathroom, him and his son. There, You know, we needed some time to remodel the bathroom, whatever, redoing the shower, redoing the tile. And this guy got to talking to me. I guess he saw some pictures around and some stuff in my bedroom, walking back and forth. And he picked up on the fact that I was a, a tugboater by trade. And he was like, hey, man. You work on the on the water, right? Like on, on on boats and stuff. And I was like, yeah, you know, work on tugboats. And he said, hey, you know, uh, Jaybird. And I was like, yeah, I know Jaybird down in Galveston, right? And he was like, yeah, 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 Jay, I did some work for him. And hey, do you know this other guy, uh, Jared? And I was like, yeah, I know Jared. So like, yeah, I did some work for him. And uh, you know, it, it's a even other people recognize that. You know, like they group us together, right? And you know, we're, we're I'm not saying we're like ultra special, like fucking astronauts or anything. Oh fuck that, we are special. <laughs> yeah, try wiping your ass next week if I stop doing my job. See what happens. <laughs> and, you can't go have no toilet paper. You can't import anything. I know, and and, and you're totally right. It, it we do a unique role that most people never even contemplate. They don't think of on a daily basis, and how important it is filling the grocery store shelves. And what all goes into getting your fucking kids Christmas presents to the store shelves so that you can buy them, wrap them up, and give them to your kid under a tree on Christmas. Fucking crap, But, you know, it, it, it's cool that other people recognize it, that we recognize it. There's a, there is a strange bond. And one of the things I'll point out is no matter what you do in the maritime industry, whether you're a deckhand – from the lowest or the captain of a ship, deep sea, you know, from, from Greece or wherever you're from, you know, everybody is equally important in their own way, in my opinion. That's the way I see it. You know, everybody's got an equally uh, important role in their own special way that has to get done or else the ship or the boat or whatever, your platform doesn't operate properly. It's 100% a team effort. Yeah. But with the team effort and with living so close together, it, it creates a bond. You're with them for half the year. Yeah. At least. On our schedule, it's equal time. You're with them half the year. And most of them don't pee with the door closed. So, I mean, it is about as close as you're going to get to anybody, <laughs> short of coming out of the womb with them. Yeah. Real quick, before I forget about it, because I just finished mine. We are we're talking about beer. This is far from a natty bow. Uh, this is a Doppelbach Dunkel by Kloster. Kloster Ondix. Alright, so this beer that we're drinking, I discovered this at a local restaurant. Uh, they just closed one of their locations. You're talking about King's? They, oh, that is so sad. So it was King's Beer Garden. Love it. Hans and his wife, I can never remember his wife's Megan. name. Megan. Megan. Hans and Megan. They, they were an older couple. He's from um, uh, Austria. Austria. She's from like Seabrook or something. And they, they love each other very much. Very fun people to be around. It was like, make a long story short, it was like a car wash. And then they started selling sausages, German sausages. And then they started selling beer. And then it turned into a full-blown restaurant. And I do, I've had almost every birthday that I've been on land for, for the last 10 years, I've had it at King's Beer Garden. Funny you say that. We used to get off the boat every watch and go drink the boot. Ah, das boot. Yeah, so originally they would have the, it was a $75 deposit and it was a three liter boot. So it was a $75, $75 deposit plus whatever three liters of beer were. And we would go there after every watch, me and some of the other guys, uh, some of the younger ones. We would go there, 
In fact, if you go in my kitchen right now, you can see where my collection. Hell yeah. Every time somebody comes over, they ask me for one, so my collection keeps getting smaller. But yeah, I used to have at one time I had like thirty of them. Holy shit! I used to get trashed in there on my day off. Man, and they got to, the on the weekends and Fridays. They they used to have the the German. I don't know what you call it, oompa bands or whatever. Oh, you're talking about Enzian bomb. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the chicken dance. As soon as everybody gets fucked up enough, everybody starts doing the chicken dance. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love the chicken dance. Yeah, uh, they do it mainly for the kids, and then the grown-ups started doing it. And then uh, they have a membership program there, and basically they call it a Stein Club. Yeah. You go in there, you, get, you buy the membership, and every year they have a Christmas party just for the Stein Club membership. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that. So... I've been a member for a better part of 10 years, and every year they have St. Nick, so I never had to worry about standing in line for the mall. You didn't have to worry about that because being a Stein Club member, they had the authentic St. Nicholas there. Yeah. Which is a little bit different from Santa Claus in dress. I mean, it's still red suit and all that. Yeah. It's, it, instead of looking like you just got off the couch, it actually it, it looks, looks like he's dressed for winter. Uh. It more or less looks like uh, more formal, Okay. I guess I could say. It's a little more formal. It's a little more uh, ornate because he, instead of just a regular belt, it's a very sophisticated belt. Okay. It's very bright brass. It's very – it has jingle bells that hang off of it. It's etched. His hat is embroidered. That's pretty cool, man. Yeah. I mean, they went all out, and then they would have several Christmas trees – and you would get a table. As a member, you got a table. Oh, that's and you, cool. you were allowed to bring your family. And at Christmas time there was just a beautiful thing. And I'm going to miss it because I'm definitely not driving to League City. Yeah, dude, that one's lame, man. I, You know, it's owned by a different family. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, King's Beer Garden. That's the one. I think that – is that it? I don't want to say the wrong one. Because the sun runs the one up in the heights, and yeah. I hear it's pretty cool, but I've never been there. It is, but you know, going from here to TC Jester, it ain't the, it ain't gonna happen. It's no. Yeah, because when I when I used to go there, it's to drink beer, not to eat. Well, although the food was fantastic, the bangers and mash is what I would always get, bangers and mash. But uh, we used to order off menu because we spent so much money there. No shit. We would get them to make us this loaded spetzel. Okay. And then we would get them to add things into it. And then my favorite thing was they had the, the schnitzel, but you had to order the Jaeger sauce on the side. Okay. Because it didn't come with it. Okay. So then I started ordering that, and then they just finally stopped, you know, stopped screwing around, and I never had to ask for it. It would just be given to me. <laughs> I didn't have to ask for the sauce because they knew that's what, the, what I wanted. And... It was great. Like I used to love going there, but you know, it's the end of an era. You know, and we're talking we're talking about this now. We our favorite restaurant, how you know our good memories. But how many people around the country, probably around the world, even even looking past America, you know, all, all over the world right now, how many people's favorite restaurants have closed down? Oh, millions. Because of COVID nineteen. Millions. millions. It's heartbreaking to think about. Just like here in Texas, we pride ourselves. We've got a badass economy, and we're probably doing better than uh, than most than a lot of people. A lot of people are moving here. There's still a lot going on. We we still there's still a lot of jobs. People are making a lot of money. However, there's still a lot of shit shutting down too. 
and and it's 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 sad. Well, my friends outside of the industry, which are very few, because for some reason apparently we don't make friends outside the industry. But the friends that I do have outside the industry, they don't have jobs. Yeah. They, they apply to 10, 12, 14 places yeah. a day, can't even get a call back. Even with degrees. With degrees, with training, with having 14 years already in the oil field. Yeah. I'm just watching them struggle. And I, I thank God every day that I'm blessed to have this job to to be able to provide. Well, it's more than a job. You've got, you've got a trade. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, anytime that all this could just be swallowed up. It could. You never know. And with all that sad stuff being noted, we're going to take a small break and we're going to be back in three, two, one. And we are back. Cool. So we actually swapped rooms. I think we're going to get a little bit better audio out of this, less reverberation. So uh, my apologies if uh, it was a little bit hard to pick us up the first half of this podcast. But so we left off, we were talking about restaurants and everything, man. So hopefully everything does better in the future, but let's get back to the stories from when you were a kid. So you're a kid, you're in Baltimore, your old man was a tugboater. Uh, Where do you go from there? So one year they had this thing called Opsail coming to town and Opsail was where all the tall ships from around the world came. Damn. Yeah, and of course they ran the rigging and they were out on the on the yard arms and it was beautiful. And I got to watch it firsthand on the stern of the JP McAllister. Holy shit. And it was epic. You know, as a kid you love that shit. Yeah. And that's where it's So tell everybody what a tall ship is. So a tall ship is it's a couple hundred foot long. It's basically a big sailboat with, you know, two, three, four I think I've seen them up the five masts with sails, like old canvas sails, and they're all made out of wood. Damn. I think the Coast Guard actually has theirs. I think they're still still rums. I think they still sail it around. Yeah, the world. I think they put cadets and stuff on it. So it's really not um, it's not one of these things that a whole lot of people are able to sail on these days. There's not too many left in the United States. I think there's some out of like Denmark and and places like that. Yeah, there's a lot of them from Iceland, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, France sailed theirs over here, Australia sailed theirs over here. Holy shit. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of countries represented that day. I think they did, I think the company as a whole did something like 17 tall ships the entire day. That's crazy. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> did they use tugboats to dock? Oh, yeah, they did. Wow. Couldn't, they couldn't touch it, so what they did was, especially with the single screws up there, they would run a line off the stern. Mm-hmm. They would use the wheel wash to push them towards the dock. Okay. And then once the line would start to get tight, they'd back it back down. Okay. And then when they needed to back it off, they would just you know give it a touch of head and make sure it didn't it. slam into the dock. Yeah, that's pretty cool, man. Yeah, it uh, it was definitely interesting to see. Of course, I was real young when all that was going on, so I, I didn't really appreciate any of that till I got older. But it made you interested in maritime stuff even more. Oh yeah, but this is this is how long ago it was. They still had the cameras where you had to wind. Okay. They were disposable, but you had to wind them. I see, I still love those cameras. Uh, I'll tell you another type of camera I still love is Polaroids. Oh dear God, are they even still around? Oh dude, man, they're big right now. Mm. My stepdaughter had one, and she got one like five years ago, and I I promptly started to use it more than she did. So 
The film's a little pricey, but they're like mini mini Polaroids, like maybe three inches long and a couple inches wide. They're, they're, you, I think they're useful because you can have something in your hands right then and there. You remember when it came out with Game Boy? <coughs> yeah. First? So my dad bought me one. I played with it for about three days and never saw it again because he would take it in the bathroom with him to play Tetris. <laughs> oh, fucker. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, that's that's where that went. So how did you end up getting into the maritime industry? I originally didn't want to go into it. I had other plans. Yeah. I went in the military, <clears throat> did some stuff there. So when did you, what age did you go into the military? I went in 17. I graduated a year early just because of the home situation. As, as I got older, the home life deteriorated. And I think a lot of that was... My parents were just too toxic for each other. and Did they stay together? They did. They separated for a couple of years in my teens, but they ended up getting back together. And I think, I think some of it had to do with the job. I think some of it had to do with the people they were. I think some of it, probably a lot of it had to do with the toxicity of the relationship later on in life. Because eventually my dad took a job where he was gone longer. Oh, really? Yeah, so... He took a job. He'd, he'd be gone for a couple weeks at a time. And Did that help or hurt? Oh, it hurt. It hurt. Where she was used to seeing him home every day, every other day, or every couple days. I mean, now you're going weeks. Like mm. a whole entire weeks. And my parents didn't have the best childhoods, at least from what they told me. So I think they were already kind of screwed up. And then they just got together. And then there was an age gap of 10 years. And it just, there, there was a whole lot of things to fuel that perfect storm. Mm. And it just didn't, it didn't work out. But somehow, we're both fucked up enough to where they ended up separating and got back together two years later. Interesting. So once that family dynamic changed, I was like, screw this, I am out of here. Yeah. And so, so what, uh, what branch of the military did you go in? I went in the Marine Corps. Uh, being on the East Coast... You go to boot camp at Paris Island, and I qualified for a program, and I actually had to actually had to petition a congressman because I'd be an only child; they don't let you in combat. So I had to petition a congressman, and I was eventually allowed in. Then I did my training at Quantico after boot camp, and then we got shipped right out. This was right around the time that all that shit was popping off in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. So. Went over there, we did some training before they put us in the field, and then we just went over there and lit shit up. Mm. I mean, for a long time, there wasn't a whole lot of rules of engagement. If they had a gun, it was it. What year are you talking about? Uh, 2000 to 2006. Damn. That was the Wild West out there. I mean, that, really? was, that was the fun years. Mm. Because you were weapons-free almost 90% of the time. Well, that was like the, the early years when y'all first went in. and Yeah. It was the early years. There weren't a whole lot of rules. There wasn't. There was a lot of oversight, but you didn't have to deal with contractors. All, all you really had to do was follow the mission objective, mm-hmm. and you were gold. You didn't have to worry about getting hauled to Leavenworth. Later on, you know, some of my friends had stayed in. It turned into a whole thing. Like you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that, and I mean, I, I knowing what I know now, how it became, I wouldn't have risked it either. Yeah. But there's a lot of good people sitting in jail right now because the mission objective changed. 
just the rules of rules of engagement and what you can do, what you can't do. Yeah, well, what they ended up doing eventually later on is they started farming that workout with companies like Blackwater and Trident, which was great because you know they're they're hired marks. They're not they're not associated with anybody. They're not following the same rules as yeah, you. Yeah, they don't have to follow. Well, they don't have to follow the normal rules. Mm. But the thing is, like, if you're going to break the rules of engagement or the, you know, the Geneva Convention or any of the other articles that are in place, you got to be able to hide it. If you can't hide it, you get hauled in front of a Judiciary Committee, and that's how Blackwater ended up losing. Mm. That's why they don't exist anymore. I think they became... Something, something older. I won't. I won't say they actually became Trident. I don't have a clue. But yeah, it's not that they ceased to exist. They just changed the name. Yeah, I only knew talking about contractors. I, I have almost zero knowledge. But there was a guy, uh, one one of my best friends. Uh, he he used to live on on a street with. He was pretty affluent. He was working in the. Uh, you know who I'm talking about? Working in the oil fields at the time, making a shitload of money. Back in like, you know, 2013, 2014. And there was a dude that lived like four or five houses down from him. I can't remember his name. I wouldn't say. Actually, I will say his first name was Mike. That's all I knew him by. And this dude, Mike, like never really talked about what he did. He didn't talk about a whole lot at all. The only thing he he would ever tell anybody, he would go off for like six months at a time. And uh, over to Afghanistan. And he would come back with a shitload of money. And this dude, he was he was an older guy. He was older than all of us. He was in his like mid forties, and you know always had that army style mustache. You know, oh, I mean the ass eater, the ass eater mustache. That's what it's called. If you ask anybody that's been in the military, that's the ass eater. That's what it <laughs> so, looks like. So he had an ass eater, and uh, this guy had a badass. He had a Ford Lightning in the garage. He had a badass. Uh, I think it was like a Corvette or something. You know, he just got, he had toys. He had he had the coolest shit. That you could imagine. And, uh, you know, no one knew where this guy's money came from at all. Lived in a big, badass house, and his wife didn't work, and he would just go away for six months and come back and have a fucking, you know, wallet full of money to spend. And uh, he was a cool dude. I have no idea what happened to that guy, but I'm sure he probably made enough money to retire by now. Well, a lot of those contractors make a lot of money, and almost all of them are former military spec ops. And it's when you come out from that kind of that kind of background, there's not a whole lot of job opportunities open to you. You're not gonna you're definitely not gonna flip burgers. Yeah. You just spent, you know, nine months, six to nine months killing people. That's what you were trained to do. They have a Intel community, they have better intel than we do most of the time mm. because they are they're allowed to have more free reign. Mm-hmm. But you know they have so many more. They have so many more assets with so much less oversight mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. Now, now it's just wild. And you know it was great. You know you could rely on those guys if you were going out on an op, and you call one of them wandering around the compound. You ask them something. You know they'll they'll share what they had with you, because a lot of times they didn't go out on ops with you. They they went and did their own thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were they were very heavily involved in snatch and grabs. They uh, they were very good guys. I mean, some of them came out of our community, and it's just what they were trained to do. Because you're not trained to do anything else. Mm-hmm. 
Whereas I had a, I had a background in maritime. I used to go to work with my father. I knew if something ever happened that I could at least fall back into that world. Yeah. Because back then you had to know somebody. Yeah. Like it was very, very territorial. And back still to this day, you get on some boats out here and it's like, who are you related to? Yeah. And it's just the way it looked. So eventually I got shot in the knee, which was interesting. And, uh, Can you tell the story? Yeah, I was running across some rooftops. We were getting shot at. It was one hell of a firefight. We were getting shot at, and uh, <laughs> I caught one to the knee, but I didn't realize it at first because the adrenaline's going. You're, you know, you're just running. So finally, we stopped and took, you know, we took cover. And my spotter was like, "Hey, you got shot, dude. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's cool. Now it hurts because now you realized what happened." You have just been shot. So I'm like, I'm going through so many emotions. First, you go through like the anger of like, wow, I'm better than this. There's no way they should have hit me. I'm better than this. And then you finally move on to acceptance. And then you finally, you know, call for an evac. And I ended up having to hump out another mile to the edge of the city to get an evac. And, you know, shout out to the uh, Air Force PJs. No shit. Oh, yeah. Dude, I so I got a little story for you. It's not military related or anything, but so we're at the. Uh, I got tickets from somebody for a badass show at the Houston Rodeo. For anybody that's not from Houston, like the main event for every year in the city is is rodeo. It's a big fucking deal. Uh, you know, it's hard to get good tickets usually because everybody's on a committee and a lot of the good tickets are taken up by the committee members and they pass them out. This and that. Uh-huh. Willie Nelson. It was one of the last shows ever done at the Houston Rodeo before COVID-19 shut down the Houston Rodeo. I think the last time the Houston Rodeo had been shut down was like 1943 or some crazy shit. Anyway, so we we see Willie Nelson. And before Willie comes on, like after all the uh, rodeo events, all the bucking Broncos, the, you know, of course, the bucking Bulls, that's the that's the big event. So in between, they've got like a little segue, so they usually put on like a little patriotic show. Yeah. And the lights go dark. They're setting up the stage, and I'm telling my son, I'm like, usually they've got like a segue, you know, something cool. And the the, the announcer's like, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to uh, direct your attention to the rafters towards the, the ceiling at this moment. And you look up, and there's these motherfuckers on uh, on the rafters, and they jump off. And these dudes come down from the rafters, in like, I don't know how fast it was, but it seemed really, really fast. It seemed dangerously fast. And they rappel down from the rafters with like American, one of, one of the guys had like an American play. It was super patriotic and, and it was cool. A little ridiculous, but still really cool at the same time. My son loved it. Turns out they were all PJs uh, from the pararescue jumpers from the Air Force, U- U.S. Air Force. And, uh, you know, they waved, waved to the crowd and then they, they run off and here's Willie Nelson. But it was still one of those things. It was like, man. PJ, you know, you always read about them, you hear about them, never really seen them, and uh, there they were at the Houston Rodeo. Pretty crazy. So there's not very many PJs in the community, and a lot of people don't know this. They're not, they don't just go through the medical training. That's just one aspect of their training. That's why their training is so long. To be a PJ, you have to enlist for like six years. Oh, really? Off the bat. Yeah, it's something crazy like that. And they go through so much medical training, but those dudes are trained to fight. Like, when they come for you, they're coming for you. It doesn't matter if you're in the middle of a firefight. They have door guns. 
They have rifles. They have sidearms. They will fight. And I've seen it. No they shit. are bitter fighters. They're trained to. They train with uh, combat air controllers. Okay. They're, they're vicious. And they're protected. Because that they went into that line to save people. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're wild, man. I wow. have so much respect for those guys. Their training is just grueling. So they came in. They got you. After you hike a mile out, being shot in the knee, and uh, they they take you out, would you go to a hospital? Uh, well, before we started going that far, we had to administer first aid. So, to stop the bleeding, we shot a tampon into my knee. <laughs> I know it sounds weird. I know it sounds weird, but that is the best you ask any woman ever. That is the best blood stopper ever. Okay. So, we all carry tampons. We all did. We had packs of them. You carry at least four or five of them in your carry, just in case you got shot, because oddly enough, a bullet wound entrance is about the same size of a bullet as it is a tampon. So, you just shove it in there, you plunge the applicator, and now you have stopped the bleeding, which is awesome. That's the first thing you want to do. You want to stop that bleeding. Then you want to assess the damage. So we did that, and uh, yeah, I hiked it out a mile with a tampon sticking out of me. It was glorious. And then we made it out there, jumped in the helo, and off we went. And uh, they shot me full of uh, painkillers, and they hit me with an IV, and basically there wasn't really much else to do because the bleeding was stopped. It didn't, it, it didn't go through. It was just one of those spray-and-pray incidents where I caught a ricochet. Mm. And luckily, thank God, Luckily, and you know, I went back to base. I did some some rehab and back out and cleared the fleet. Nice. So it didn't take you out of commission. No, out of commission. no. But what it did do is it kind of it kind of sidelined me from the community that I was in mm-hmm. because you have to have all original working parts and it has to be original equipment. Mm. So they offered me. They were like, well. You can be administrative, you can, you know, train. But well, I didn't really join to sit at a desk. That, as a Marine, that is the worst possible thing that you could ever do because that's not, you don't join the Marines to drive a desk. Yeah. You know, nobody talks about the brave men and their mighty desk. Yeah. So, I mean, some people just have to do it. And, you know, there's definitely a need for it, for sure, but that's just not who I was at that point in time. Had I thought about it, I may have did it. Mm. But, you know, I was still in. I was still trying to figure out which way I was going to take. And I got to thinking about it, you know. I had a pretty comfortable living growing up most of the time. But I could stay in and get medical or I could get out and make money and get benefits and hope they're just as good. Or I could stay in with my friends, or I could get out, and it, it just became one big giant eternal struggle. And it was hard. Like, it was hard. It's one of the hardest decisions I ever had to make. So at the end of my contract, I'm like, all right, getting out. No, I'm not. Okay, I'm doing this. Getting out. No, I'm not. And finally, I just reached a point where my options were given to me, and the more I thought about it, the more it actually kind of broke my heart to stay there because you 
you know, you make a bond, just like in the, in the maritime industry, you have a bond with the people that you fight with. And they're actually fairly comparable. Like, you form very strong bonds in both industries. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it just got to the point where staying in just seemed like a super bad idea. So I got out, and then I kind of sat around for about a month and a half, and my dad was like, hey, you can't keep moping around the house. You have to do something. Right, wrong, or indifferent, you have to do something. I said, okay. What do you suggest? He kind of looked at me, and he goes, you're an adult. My job's done. You know, you got a roof over your head. You know, there's food in the fridge. But short of that, you're on your own. So I thought about it and thought about it. And finally, I just decided I can do this. I can do his job. In fact, I could probably do it better. So I just decided at one point that this is what I want to do because without a college degree and only having training that involves a gun, and what else are you going to do? Yeah. You got to pick up something you different. S- you stick with what you know yeah. to a certain point. I knew maritime growing up. I knew that it was fun. I knew that it was an adrenaline rush. Yeah. And that's what I needed. I, in the civilian world, this is, in the civilian world, ship docking is the best adrenaline rush that you can get. Yeah. It's not jumping out of a plane. It's not any of this other bullshit civilian stuff. It's ship docking because you're not just worried about yourself. You're worried about your entire crew, the company, the boat, and at any time, all that shit can go south. Oh, God. It's exciting. Yeah, you know, and uh, it's hard to explain to people sometimes. You know, people... In the maritime industry, and, I, and I'm in, hey, I'm all for it. Like, sometimes I criticize myself as a tugboater, too. You know, like, there's real mariners that are out there in the North Sea getting banged around in seas that I've, I've never even dreamt of. You know, we're out there in the Bering Strait and shit like that, like some real salty dudes out there, and women. But with tugboating, you know, sometimes I'll try to explain it, and it's like, yeah, most of the time it's boring. But you've spent your whole career trying to avoid contact, avoid collisions, and that's what I specialize in. I specialize in getting as close to an inbound ship as possible and making up to that ship and, and, and just crashing into that, that fucking ship with, without damaging this boat, without killing my crew members, without harming the ship. And it, it, it's, a, it's a really weird paradox because, you know, you have to stay safe. But you have to crash into things, too. You know? It's hours of boredom for moments of sheer terror. There you go. At 3 a.m., if you're on the mate's watch, and I was for a while, if you're on the mate's watch, it's 3 a.m., it's raining, it's windy. Occasionally, we get that kind of weather here. And this is, keep in mind, this is back before the, the some of the rules that exist now because of what would happen when we did this. You're jumping out in front of these ships running backwards at 11 and a half knots in 35, 40 mile an hour winds, raining, praying to God that you could stay out there ahead of the ship. And there's been a couple times going into some of these docks where the pilot's like, hey, we need you on the bow because we may lose this going into that narrow channel. So you, you say, okay, but you know, I can only do 11 and a half backwards. So you get your line up, you're running backwards, 
you're around a ship, well, the ship speeds up because the pilot's getting nervous because the wind's catching them broadside. So the ship starts passing you, and you have two options. You can dump the line or call the pilot and hope he slows down. Most of the time, the pilots are, are great, and they're you know on the radio with you. They're communicating, and I am very grateful to the Houston pilots, by the way. They're uh, very, very professional. They look out for us whenever they can. But there's just some instances, and that you know that that's when it happens. It doesn't happen during the day when it's Sunday, sunny and 75, blowing five knots out of the east. It doesn't happen that way. It always happens at 3 a.m. when it's dark and windy and rainy. Nothing ever happens during the day in great weather. But those are the moments where it's the most exciting. Yeah. That's where I find the most fun. Yeah. And now there's now there's rules. We can't go any faster than I think it's nine and a half knots now. Mm-hmm. So there's rules in place. It's getting safer and safer all the time. You know, I look at it from when my father was a captain till now, and it's leaps and bounds, leaps and bounds compared to what it used to be. Now we actually have safety rules where mm-hmm. they used to sail with you know a, a case of Budweiser in the fridge. Yeah. And I'm I'm grateful it's safer, but at the same time I still like that adrenaline rush. Yeah, I'm sure you still get plenty of it. Uh, yeah, especially since somebody joined the Freeport Pilots. <laughs> I, I, I can't say, uh, I can't say anymore. So, you not only have driven tugboats in Houston, but let's back up a little bit. So, you drove tugboats, um, you told me before, in, in New York. So, yeah, uh, when I got out of, out of the military, I decided I was going to go into the towing industry and... I wasn't sure if I wanted to be offshore, inshore, near coastal. So I went to work for McCallister, and which is a great company. They have a East Coast fleet, and I got to do a lot of cool things. A lot of cool things that I couldn't do anywhere else. Mm-hmm. They have older equipment. So the guy that actually taught me how to run a single screw looked exactly like the Gordon's Fisherman. Okay. <laughs> have you ever seen a box of the fish sticks? With the, the white beard, the white hair, the cap, and the, the ring slicker. Nice. That was him. And he used to smoke unfiltered palmos. Oh, my God. And what he would do is he would ash on the dash. On purpose? And he would call them his buoys. His buoys? He would call them his buoys because it would be like a long thing of ash. And if you looked at it, it kind of looked like the channel. <laughs> but, yeah, he called him his buoys. And this dude, he had to be a belt. You had to be at least at least early 60s when I first started working with him. I'm pretty sure he's still alive, at least the last I've heard. He's still alive. But uh, you want to talk about salty. You can flavor your steak with that man. No shit. That man is... I've seen him do some of the prettiest things with a single screw that I've ever seen in my life, with the exception of one of the gentlemen that we have here in Houston... And I, I'm not going to say his name. Say his name. Say his name. Uh, Captain Wade. I was just going to – I was thinking of Captain Wade. Captain Wade, uh, if, for any of you all that know him, Captain Wade has been out here since, I don't know, Noah sailed the Ark. I'm pretty, yeah. I'm pretty sure he was second mate on it. 
But Wade has been out here forever. He was on the single screws forever, and I've seen that man do some of the prettiest work I've ever seen in my life. Well, he taught me how to walk a single screw, diamond mm-hmm. class boat. And I, I can't remember. I, I was his deckhand, and I used this shit when I was a mate. And I, w- I was doing stuff with these boats that and, – and just to explain it to everybody, a, a, a diamond boat for this company that um, we're talking about here in Houston, it's like – it's got the hull of a bathtub. So the hull looks like a bathtub. And it's single screw. They they were made in like Georgia or something in the mid eighties. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the shipyard over in Georgia. Mm, was it Blood? No, Bloodworth's here in in uh, Galveston Bay. No, it was it, they were made in a shipyard over there in uh, in Georgia. Anyways, and that's uh, gonna drive me nuts. Now. But I know it's gonna drive me crazy too. But they they had flanking rudders, so single screw flanking rudder, which mm-hmm. is just kind of like you know putting lipstick on a pig almost. And uh, they're so difficult to maneuver because they're underpowered, you know, kind of kind of big boats, but and, and they just don't have a whole lot of power. So, but from watching Captain Wade do shit when I was a deckhand, he would actually teach me stuff. And he taught me. So when I became a mate, they gave me two days to get my letter on these boats. And a letter means, for those of y'all out there in podcast land, a letter means, hey, you're signed off. You can be mate now. You stand your own watch and navigate this boat and do jobs on your own. So I had two days to get that on the double D Hayden two, and uh, and man, but you know, walking a single screw, doing all this crazy, it's like a ballet with a bathtub. And you know, you watch these old timers do this stuff, and it's absolutely amazing. Like it, it's almost uh, defying physics the things that they do with these boats. Yeah, uh, Wade has an epic way of just teaching something. Wade doesn't get excited when he's teaching. He doesn't, he lets you mess up. He lets you grow into it. But he is very, very conscientious of how you handle the boat. And he'll get in there and he'll show you and he'll teach you if you just listen and pay attention. You will learn more in a half hour than you will with some of these other guys in a lifetime. Mm. My old man, one of the one of the best things he ever said to me, at least one of the most coherent things he ever said to me, was if if you watch some of these guys, you're gonna learn a lot of what to do and a lot of what not to do. Now everybody thinks they're doing it right, but you just pay attention. Just watch. Don't say nothing. Don't interject. Don't take the wheel. Just let it happen and see what happens. But just pay attention. And I did. And when I first came to this company, they uh, after about a year and a half, they stuck me with Wade, which was great. And uh, Wade was very welcoming. It was very, uh, it, you know, you go to some boats, it's like kind of weird. Mm-hmm. But it was just like, hey, get in here, have some soup. Okay. That's fantastic. Like, I've... You know, you usually don't go anywhere, and it's like that open. But he, uh, I hope, I hope when he retires that he takes a teaching job because he has so much to offer. And I've seen him do so many cool things with mm-hmm. his boats, and I love Wade. I always will. Is uh, he's got a very beautiful family. It's he's just an all-around good person. He's got. You ever met somebody you just want to be near them? Mm-hmm. Just because of that aura that they give off, yeah, that vibe. I don't know. Yeah. I guess the kids are calling it a vibe these days. But uh, yeah, he's just one of those people that you can just be around, and you don't even have to talk. Just watch. Yeah, and you will learn so much more. 
Well, you know, I always felt like when I was a kid, you know, getting on some of these older boats like that with these old timers, like Wade, for example, it it wouldn't even like work. You know, it's like camping out. It's like hanging out with the guys. Mm-hmm. You know, like some people go to hunting lodges and and that's where they get their fix. Well, I I would get my fixes from hanging out with the old timers on tugboats. You know, that that was my fix, man. I didn't need to go to your fucking hunting cabin because I'm I'm spending weekends with Wade learning how to drive a, a tugboat when I'm not even qualified to drive a tugboat, you know? It's kind of funny you say that. Another story from way back in the day. And uh, where my father worked in Baltimore City, they used to have a trailer, and they called it the Night Watchman. He was essentially dispatch and security. Yeah. And this old man's name was Clarence. Yeah. And Clarence was sitting at office. Clarence had another hobby. He used to build model tugboats. Okay. So he would... Get the dimensions off of every boat that was in the harbor for McAllister. And he would take popsicle sticks, a tiny piece of wood for the keel, glue, Q-tips, and a a couple other things that you find, like, around the house. Yeah. And what he would do is he would get himself a sanding disc. And he would sit there, and he would just sand. And he would sand everything, and he would make a certain class of boat. He would make, like, eight of them. So, uh, for any of y'all that know anything about McAllister, they used to have a tug called the J.P. McAllister. Ironically, my father and I were both masters of that boat at, at one point in time. And, uh, That's pretty cool, man. Yeah, it, it, re- it really is. But this guy Clarence, what he would do is he'd get the dimensions and he would make a bunch of them. And he would sell them to the crews for what he paid to make it. Mm-hmm. He never, that man never made a dime off of that, ever. He would just, whatever the cost of material was. Wow. So the fendering on the side of him, what he used to do is go out, and he would cut the fendering off of the tires. And he would sit there and slice it down. So every once in a while, my father would have to go stand a night watch over there, because they always had somebody on fire watch. And he would take me with him. So I got to watch this man make these boats. And it was the coolest thing I think I've ever been a part of. And what he used to let me do was I used to get to sit there and cut the rubber. And then eventually, when I learned the rubber, he would let me sand. Yeah. And I'd sit there with a sanding disc, and, you know, being that young, you know, three, four o'clock in the morning, I'm sitting there sanding wood, you know, helping this guy. And I thought, I thought it was the greatest thing ever. That guy, Clarence, he lived to be, uh, I want to say he lived to be about 106. Damn. And smoked two packs a day, drank like a, like a sailor. Hell yeah. <laughs> I was pretty sure that he just stayed alive for spite. Really? Mm-hmm. Did he, uh, he kept working into his old age? Well, yeah, that was his third career. Mm. He had already been through, he already retired from two other companies. He just took that night watch job to get away from his wife. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he wasn't really a people person, but what I learned was if I sat there and I, I stayed quiet, he would teach me things. So I guess later on in life, I kind of learned, like, you know, when I'm in a room, I'm quiet. Because mm-hmm. you know me. Ordinarily, I don't yeah. talk this much. I know. So, this is the most I've ever seen this guy talk for the record, ever. Unless it's ordering another beer. There you go. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, uh, you know, Clarence, he, he took the time after a while. And eventually i was able to ask questions he pointed me towards a couple of books that i have in that office right now okay if i'm not mistaken on model shipbuilding that he read 
Dude, go grab them. Go grab them so we can tell the world about them. I'm going to pause this real quick. He's going to go grab these books, and we're going to share them with the, with the world. So if anybody ever wants to uh, get into model shipbuilding, these can be some, some references, and I will list them in the show notes. All right. So these three books are Ship Models, How to Build Them by Charles G. Davis, Ship Model Building by Gene Johnson, and Ship Modeling from Scratch, which I think this is the coolest book, Ship Modeling from Scratch by Edwin B. Lee, Tips and Techniques for Building Without Kits. Well, Mr. Salty, I'm going to give this book to you. In hopes that you and your children Hell yeah, man. will eventually get into it. Thanks, man. I appreciate that, dude. So uh, that's actually the second copy I've owned. It's been updated over the years. Okay. So basically, it shows you from start to finish how to make a model. And uh, like I said, Clarence swore by these books, and that man made such good quality things. I, I wish I still had them. I lost them. At some point in my life, but it uh, it's definitely a lot of fun, and I think you and your kids would definitely enjoy this. Hell yeah, man! I, have, uh, I was I was telling uh, Special K off the air when we were smoking a cigarette. When I was a kid, my dad had two model tugboats that he put together, and I thought they were toys. So I would I would take them down and try to play with them like toys, and I would get in trouble because they weren't toys. But I mean, no kid understands that. You know, everything's a toy when you're a kid. And uh, I'll definitely try to see if I, I can sit down with my kids and actually construct a, a toy ship from scratch, man. This is some pretty intricate stuff. I, I will give you a pro tip. The hand railings yeah. on the tugs, Yeah. use Q-tips. Q-tips. Use Q-tips and cut the ends off of them. Okay, fair enough. They make the best hand railings, and you can actually spray paint. Okay. So all the, when Clarence painted these boats, he used the boat paint. He would go down and get a little coffee can full of each color. And that's what he did. And then he had this little foot-operated air sprayer that he mocked up himself. And he would do the hand railings in white, because McAllister's hand rails are white. Yeah. In the white paint with this really <coughs> weird sprayer. And I tell you, it, those models were, I mean, they're nothing like professional. Yeah. That man, he poured his heart and soul into it, and that's what he did. And that's what counts, too, yeah. you know, built with heart and soul. You know, I was in a Lego store the other day, and Once I know— you get a second and third job, that place is expensive. Dude, that place is super expensive, man. Well, I, I fucked up, and I told my daughter it was her birthday last month, and I was like, you know, because my mom insists upon doing, like, a family dinner— for all the kids' birthdays, and, you know, she got a bouncy house and all this stuff. But my big deal is, like, if it's your birthday, like, we still need to do something special. Like, especially for a child, because who wants their birthday to pass, and, oh, we're, we're, we're going to celebrate it on this upcoming Sunday, right? So that's fucked up. So anyways, I was like, okay. You people that enjoy children just fascinate me. Yeah, I was like, let's load up. I mean, ch children are, are tough. They're hard. It's not easy being a parent. I'm not the best parent, so I'm not Children giving... are cool when they're not yours. Right. There's nothing I love more than to take children out, like, because I have goddaughters. I love taking them out. I love feeding them all the caffeine and sugar, and I love dropping them back off. <laughs> so I was like, let's load up the truck. Let's go to the mall, which we still have 
a mall by us, which is still pretty vigorous. Uh, the Baybrook Mall is, is still got a lot of people. You know, I hear malls. Damn are sh- things expanding. It's expanding I again. Know. And a lot okay. of malls around the country are shutting down. So we go in. I'm like, okay, I teach her how to read the map on the mall. And she's like, oh, it's just like Stranger Things. So we go in, and I take her to the Lego store. We find, we navigate our way to the Lego store. You know there's an app for that, right? I had no idea. I, I'm old school, man. I, I don't like apps. I don't even like – I don't like anything computerized. It's See, amazing. Here's, here's the problem. You teach the kids how to read a map, then they're going to find their way home. That's right. That's not, right. A, not ideal. God, you fascinating. So we go into this Lego store, and she's looking at all the girly stuff and whatever, and I'm like, look at this. I'm like, Abby, they've got ships. They had co- They had a Coast Guard cutter. They had – I think there was like a Maersk <laughs> ship, and I'm like, oh, my God, there's ships. And, of course, they had everything Star Wars and castles too, but I wanted a ship. So I think for Christmas, I think I'm asking for a ship, a Lego ship, and I'm going to put that sucker together, and I'm going to use the crackle. And put it in to where it's not able to be taken apart. I don't know. You're asking Miss Salty a lot. Yeah, no. I don't know how good of a husband you've been lately. <laughs> not very good. So I was gifted as a, as a child. I was gifted a Lego set because my parents couldn't really afford it. Uh, so it was just basically a five gallon bucket of miscellaneous parts. Yeah. Like you had doors from the house and then you had like spaceship parts. Like it was just, it was just a hodgepodge of all Lego parts. Yeah. And this was back before they got real expensive. So I was gifted a five gallon bucket full of it. And one of the few times my father actually sat down on the floor with me. I mean, he played with me, but he would do things with me, but my father's a large man for him to get on the floor is saying something. Yeah. So he would haul his big ass to the floor, and we'd dump out the Legos. And one day, after a few Budweiser's, he's sitting there, and he's kind of looking at a couple of pieces. And next thing I know, he starts grabbing some pieces. So I see it all come together. I stop what I'm doing. Like, I'm just kind of like building this really fucked up house. So he built a tugboat out of Legos with the parts that we had, and I'm kind of looking at him like, well, it's got a flat bow. Is it a push tug? But, uh, yeah, he's that man sat there for four and a half hours. And built a tugboat. And built a tugboat. That's cool. That's why Legos are are so interesting because it really is a medium for what's in your imagination. You know, and it doesn't matter how old you are. I mean, of course, you can follow the instructions. He was 41 at the time. 41. He was 41. That's cool, man. My father is 66 now. So that shows you that shows you that Legos they don't know an age. Yeah. I will still to this day, I don't care who it is or for any reason, I will sit there. If a kid dumps out some Legos, I'll be on that floor. Because that's one of the few times that I actually cherish of my childhood. Legos transcend everything. The same way Mortal Kombat did when it came first came out on Sega. I mean it just it's just one of those timeless things. You Dude, can... speaking of Mortal Kombat. Oh, here we go. So I, I was really proud of myself, man. So I took uh, my son, my oldest son, Axel, and we went to the um, AXEL, not like Axel Rose, not AXL, Axel. And uh, so we went to the, the – there's like an arcade. Can we stop that for a second? How did you talk your wife into that one? So I had kids at a young age, 
And uh, I had a lot of crazy ideas at the time, and we went through a list of names, everything ranging from like Japanese names. Uh, I was really into Bleach when I was like 20 years old, 20, I guess 21. I've seen the pictures. Yeah, and uh, and anyway, so I just some weird names. I don't know how. So I am. Um, I, I won't get into. I won't get into all the details, but that's what we ended up on, Axel. And my mother-in-law, God rest her soul, she was from Hong Kong. And the first thing, the first set of criticism I ever got for the name Axel was, uh, she said, Axel, it's going to sound like asshole. Fair enough. <laughs> and I was like, well, Fair enough. I never would have thought about that. But yeah, now uh, I'm a little concerned about that. But we, so we still named him Axel. And, uh, you know, I was young and, you know, into you know, being rebellious and whatever. So he ended up with the name Axel. Yeah. So a little background for those of you in podcast land. Mr. Salty's wife is one of the sweetest people that I think I've ever met in my life. Thank you, thank you. How that woman has managed to put up with your shit for the better part of what I assume has to be close to 20 years is simply mind-boggling because, let's face it, you're an ass. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thank you, man. You know, But we, I love you. So I'll get back into the arcade story soon, but we were at a we were at a gala the other day. Both of us. <laughs> I saw you at this gala. And for those of you out there, you know, that's why last episode I kind of I, I mentioned charities. I actually showered for that. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think you were the only dude with a full beard, besides the crazy guy that kind of looked like a like a rich hobo. But uh you know, it was a cool thing. You know, Char- charities are, are a cool thing, man. And this one charity, uh, help me with the name of it. Can you remember the name of it? Oh, uh, I'd have to dig out the card. I'll, I'll, I'll the charity is ran by one of our co-workers. Uh, and his wife. And his wife. I'm sorry. Yeah, and his wife. Uh, they're very good people. They fought very hard to get it up to gala status. And it was one of the best times I've had in my life. Uh, there were casino games. There were raffles. Uh, it, it's all for a good cause. It's a good time. I'll find the name of it. Hold on. And, sorry, if you hear us burp, it's because we're drinking German beer. Oh my God, this beer is delicious. And uh, so we went to this gala, and I was double fisted by about forty-five minutes into it because you couldn't get a drink unless you were double fisted. Like you had to pre-plan your drinks, and they had it over there in South Shore Harbor, and uh. Everybody dressed up. Even I actually put on a suit and showered and shaved a part of my face. But yeah, uh, Mission Move. That's in it. That's the name of the charity. Mission yes. Move. So Mission Move. It's an all-year thing. Uh, ran by two very good people. It's, I'm sure if you Google Mission Move, it'll come up. Uh, basically, their son is uh, at something and. It's not very prevalent. It's not like a known issue. It's not it's not broadcasted. It's you won't see it on the news. So Mission Moves goal is to bring that out into the open and I couldn't think of two better people to spearhead that. Yeah. They are very good people. It is a very solid charity. I donate to it every time I can. Yeah. And it's they put on great events. The year before this they did a run, which I don't run. Because, you know, let's face it. You didn't up running before. Well, I don't know. Unless you're on a pool. 
which I do. <laughs> Joking, I'm just picking on Mr. Salty. But I'll tell you what, man. You know, if you get the opportunity to go to a gala, it's super cool. You know, everybody gets an opportunity to kind of, you know, dress up a little bit. As tugboat trash, it gives us an excuse not to smell like diesel. There you go. And and uh, if you can find one, uh, your your local Seaman Center probably does a maritime gala uh, for the uh, the seafarers, the seafarer centers, Seaman Centers, whatever they call them. Um, you know, usually they'll do uh, a gala, maritime gala or something in big cities. Gives everybody an opportunity to get involved and kind of, you know, bid on silent auction items. And sometimes they even at the big ones, they'll even have like a live auction. And it, it's just kind of a cool experience. So, so while we're talking about charities, uh, one of the one of the ones that I've actually become a part of over the last couple of years from associating with the, with the fine women that are in this organization is Vista. Okay. Yeah. So Vista. They do a drive every year where they package up certain items and give them to crew members on ships. Really? Yes, they do. And this year, uh, one of the one of the fine fem- females that I work with, uh, very very intelligent, very on the ball. She will probably be captain within the next year, mm-hmm. if I had to guess. Mm-hmm. She is uh, she spearheaded the Amazon drive. So what they did was they sent out this you know, Facebook message and said, "Hey, if you can donate, great." So what you do is you log on to their their shopping cart for Amazon. What's it called? Wishlist. Wishlist. Yeah, yeah. Amazon wishlist. So you click on their link for the wishlist, and actually, I think you had one of the leaders of Wishlist on your podcast, the mm-hmm. Captain. Yep. Yep. So Captain Price. Yeah, Captain Price, and she. Uh, so. All the women get together, and what they do is they put this wish list out. And all you got to do, you don't have to show up. You don't do anything. You sit on your couch. You click a couple items or whatever you can afford, and all the items get shipped directly to that person. So it went straight to the Wista head, and they took it to the pilot office, and they put all the boxes together, which is fantastic because, I mean, let's face it, just doing – the seven days that we do is tough. And uh, I was just telling a story to Mr. Salty off air about, you know, things you miss while while you're actually on the tub. And one of those is pizza. So, I mean, I can only imagine what it's like to be stuck on a ship for, you know, two, three, four months, whatever their hitch is. So what Wista strives to do around the holiday time, especially around Christmas, is They'll get notebooks and toothbrushes and uh, candy, uh, pretty much anything that we ordinarily take for granted, and they bag it up and box it up. They put it in they put it in plastic totes so they can reuse it. And I think it's probably the greatest thing I have ever seen as far as gift giving for someone you don't know. So they box up hundreds of these, hundreds upon hundreds. And they give them out. They donate them to the, I want to say they, it goes to the Seaman Center. Mm-hmm. And then they distribute. That sounds right. I want to say, I'm not 100% sure, so don't quote me on that. But Wista spearheads that. And that is the women in the industry. For those of y'all who don't know what Wista is, it's the women that are out on these boats and these ships and these pilots what they did is they banded together to empower each other 
and to create a goodness mm-hmm. within the industry. And that is probably the single most beautiful thing I think I've ever seen in the industry. They do a lot. They are incredible women, and I respect every single one of them. But yeah. I just wanted to give them a quick shout out. If you haven't checked them out, I'm sure JB will throw it out. Yeah, there. I'll, uh, maybe I'll try. I'll try to find a link and, and put it in there. I'll definitely uh, tag it with Wista, so when people are searching for Wista, maybe they can find this podcast and and uh, check out what what we're talking about, man. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, there, there's so many noble causes, right? And we can't be a part of all of them. But obviously, we're we're maritime focused, and if there's something really cool going on in the maritime industry, you know, we've got to support that. And uh, it, you know, I know you, I know what you make, and uh, you know, I know what maritime, what most mariners make, ballpark figure. We're we're not starving, okay? So we've got the extra income to support things that we like, Here, and we should do that. Here's here's the income status. JB got lost in my house, <laughs> so. More none of us are hurting, especially at this time of year, which is so. This is the first year that I have been able to get back to adopting a family for Christmas. Okay. So you haven't been on that side of the house. Yet. No, I have. So if you go on that, <laughs> the other side, I got lost in the other side of the fucking. If you house. go on that side of the house and you make a left, you'll see where the tree is. Yeah. And back in the day, and this is another thing my parents used to do when they were together and when they were functioning is the tug crews would adopt families. Okay. There were seven tugs in Baltimore, so they adopted seven families. So two crews per tug, one family per tug. So you had a crew, and this is back in the day when they had five-man crews. So you had ten people buying for one family. So that was fantastic. And these are people that couldn't afford Christmas. Mm. These are people that couldn't even afford a tree. Yeah. They couldn't afford the food to put on the table. So a couple of people would be on food. A couple of people from the crew would be on the tree ornaments and decorations. The other half of the crew would be on presents. Oh, and what cool, you man. used to do is, and I distinctly remember these lists because my mom used to take me shopping with it for them. And it would list the parents, the ages, the names, and it would give you the kids' names. It never gave you last names. You weren't allowed to interact with the family at all. All you knew was that they had a first name, how old they were, and what sizes they were as far as shoes and shirts. Because a lot of those requests that they made were for clothing. I can't remember ever seeing what type of toy they wanted. Mm. It was all of necessities. Yeah. These guys on these boats and these women, because there was one named Gina. She was an engineer. That's back in the 80s, mind And, uh... She was actually her math lady. True story. No shit. Yeah. I didn't find that out. She drove a Camaro. Oh, yeah. He, she drove a Camaro. Oh, yeah. So I didn't find this out until later on in life when I was sitting on the porch drinking a beer with my old man. So. Uh, I mean, does that come up in casual conversation? Like, hey, Gina, like, are you a hermaphrodite? We're drinking 7.7% alcoholic beer. Yeah, it comes up. So we would, we would go out shopping and then, you know. There'd be four or five of us out there shopping. It was always the wives that went shopping. And I would, as kids, that's where you went. You went shopping. And they would fill, this is back when Kmart and all that was over back up in the Northeast. And and, uh, they would fill shopping cart after shopping cart. It didn't matter. I mean, they saw ages. And, you know, all of them had kids. So they would grab toys 
they would grab Nintendos, they would grab high-end electronics, they would, I mean, one cart was just specifically clothes. Yeah. And then you would have toys, and then you would have, like, shampoo and conditioner, and toothbrushes, and it got, it was wild. And to be a part of that, and at that age, I didn't really understand it. I just knew that we were doing something good. My yeah. parents explained that to me. But being older now and looking back on it, and I haven't thought about this for years, but being older and thinking about it, it's like that is that is moving. Dude, I, I, I'm filled with the Christmas spirit right now, dude. This, this is the most Christmas feeling I've had in a long time because you, this is inspiring. This, this to me, it makes me feel like I'm doing nothing. You know, I need to get out there and do something. I need to, I need to act upon what you're saying. Like adopting a family, how can you do that? Is there, is there an organization? There is. The well, Salvation Army runs one. Okay. Uh, Facebook groups actually run one, which is where I got my family this year. Uh, it's a family of two. What's, what's the Facebook group? Uh, uh, the one I used as friends with something or other. Okay. And uh, it started off as we found out she didn't even have a tree for Christmas. It was just her and her daughter. Hmm. Didn't even have a tree for Christmas, so somebody took care of that. So a couple of us messaged her, like, what can we do? Oh, well, don't worry about it, you know, uh, I'm okay. Well, no, you're not. I'm sorry, you're not. What can we do to help you? And it took a while because we were in this big, huge chat. Yeah. There was a bunch of us in yeah. this chat. We're like, look, we're here to help. It takes a community. So we finally got her to open up, and we found out that her daughter was Jojo Siwa. Jojo Siwa. I've heard that name a million times. I didn't know who she was till I ordered the doll. Yeah, it's a, it's like a cartoon. Yeah, it's a, well, she's actually a person, like a real life person. Okay. She, she was on uh, Dance Moms or Dance, I don't know, she was on with Honey Boo Boo and whatever. I'm going to tag that on the podcast, Jojo Siwa. Yeah, so Jojo Siwa, she's a very young woman. Uh, I don't know if she's 18 yet. But uh, she's very empowering. She's very good at dance. She uh, she's more of a positive role model more than Honey Boo Boo ever could be. Okay. Uh, she's healthy. She's she's you know on her own. She makes her own money. She's very adult. You see her on TikTok a lot apparently. So I didn't know who she was till the other day when I ordered the doll, and you know naturally you know sparked some kind of interest. Like, am I enabling? Or should we move on to something else? But no, she's actually pretty legit so far. Okay. So far. Yeah. I don't want, like, 20 years down the road, this podcast to bite me in the ass because I endorsed it. You know what I mean? So, I bought the doll, and uh, her dolls aren't, like, crazy expensive. I paid $20 for the doll, which is great. You know, she keeps her merchandise, you know, reasonable. So, a couple days go by, and I'm like, what do you want? As the adult, what do you want? What can I do to make life a little bit easier? She's like, don't worry about me. Just worry about my daughter. I'm like, your daughter's taking care of her. There's like seven people on this. Mm -hmm. She's good. So she mentioned something about tires. I said, well, let's take a picture of them, and I'll trap them down. At the very least, maybe we can get a couple changed out between all of us in the group. 
So she takes a picture of them and the steel band. Do you know how far you have to drive on a tire to see the steel band? It's dangerous. You shouldn't do it. Yeah. That's what I told her. Two of those tires, the two front ones that she used the most because apparently for some odd reason people don't know to rotate their tires. Yeah. So it's the two front ones. The two back ones are bad, but they're not quite there yet. Yeah. So we actually got her two new tires. She goes, oh, it's cool, man. She goes on the 18th in a couple of days to go get them fixed. So we got her two brand new tires, and I believe the last time I checked the group, we have plans to get her the other two tires by the end of December. That's cool, man. Beginning of January? That's some Christmas stuff right there. That is... Well, here's the thing. If you're blessed, and I, I just recently got back to religion from a very long hiatus, like when I say long, like stripper cocaine long, and it, it took me a while to realize, it took me a long time to grow up after I got a divorce, that, you know, there's more than just me, and, you know, I remember things from my childhood, like my parents adopting those families, and I wanted to get back to that, mm. like, you can only run wild for so long. Yeah. Before it starts to take a toll and you realize, like, this is hurting my soul. Yeah. Like, a little piece of your heart lose you every time. The further you get into it, the worse it gets to the point where... It, I've reached a point where, like, I just didn't care. Like, I would get blackout drunk and just not care on my own phone. And it just got to a point where, like, I was alienating myself and people. Yeah. And that's the last thing you want to do. Yeah. So I reached a point where, you know, all poor me shit, and I moved on, and I started to grow up, and it's like, I want to get back to the things that I was taught. So I went back to church, got that going, then, you know, I got to thinking about the whole about the family thing, and it just so happened that that moment on the Facebook happened at the perfect moment at this time, at this particular holiday. That's awesome, man. It is, and always keep in mind, like, your situation could be a lot worse. Everybody's situation, even, you could have a tent in the middle of the woods right now, and your situation could be worse. Mm. But it's all about, at this time of year especially, I care more about the kids than I do grown-ups. Yeah. It's all... I joke about, you know, why would you have kids, and, you know, I might razz you a little bit, but it's all about the kids, man. Yeah. I'm smart enough to know that the kids are who are going to be changing our diapers in 40 years. Isn't that the truth? So, and, you know, people always ask me, like, oh, you're single, you don't have kids, you know, you don't, you don't get bothered by paying school tax and all this stuff. Are you kidding me? I'd invest more in school tax if I could. Because some of these motherfuckers are dumb. Yeah. And God bless the teachers. They're strung out as far as they could go, and especially with distance learning. Yeah. I mean, good God. I wouldn't... That is the one thing, the only thing, that I do not mind investing in. Because the kids... Somebody said the kids are our future, and yeah, I mean, that's kind of cynical and true at the same point. But when you really dig into it, what are we doing? We're leaving a legacy. That's how you live forever. How do you want to be remembered? Yeah, you know, I... How, how on earth? On earth? Like, let's say... How many kids you got? Five. Five. 
you have five kids. Each kid's going to remember you differently. Mm. But here's the thing. You want them to remember one thing. You want to remember how much you love them. That's the only thing that they're all going to agree on. Yeah. Because each kid is different. Their ages are different. There's such a different personality in each kid. Yeah. And again, that is one strong woman that you married. God bless her. Mm-hmm. So I can only imagine what it's like in the salty household. It's tough, man. You know, it's not always. It, it's it's not easy. You know, it, it's it's in a it's a contact sport. Parenting is, and uh, you know, a lot of people get to go home and just. If you want after this one, go build an octagon. No shit. <laughs> no, go fight in with all the kids and stuff. I, <laughs> I mean, we do. That's you know. So the one of the number one things in the salty household that we do is uh, is Russell. You know, my my oldest son. Festivus for the rest of us. He he loves to wrestle. Dad, can we wrestle? Boom. And and it's almost like he doesn't even want to fight back a whole lot. Is he just wants to be manhandled and he laughs and he loves it. And my young one likes to punch me in the kidneys and he's he's tiny. God bless him, he's tiny, but he's got some bony little knuckles and he likes to hit me a lot. And uh, he he's got a hell of a punch, man. And he likes to hit me, and then he'll look at me when he knows he hurts me, and he'll look at me, and he's like, okay, he still loves me. Okay, okay, I, I can hurt this guy, and he still <laughs> loves me. And and my daughter, um, my middle daughter, does jujitsu, and uh, she loves it. She's really good at it, evidently. She's really tough, and, and she's uh, like – they call it life training at the end of the, the Gracie Barra type mm-hmm. uh, type uh, training session. They do life training. Gra- I was in Gracie Barra for 10 years. I didn't know that. And it, it's some cool stuff, and it's effective because she is a she's prob- she probably weighs 70 pounds, and she can get me off balance and, like, almost take me down. Well, that's what they teach you. Yeah. They and, teach you how to fight an unfair fight. That's the whole idea. Yeah, and, and it works, man. And but she loves that. She gets in there, and she does her little jujitsu thing. True story. One of the guys that works down there on the dock at Pier 10 in Galveston. Yeah. That was my rolling partner because we were the two biggest people in the class. Really? He is now a black belt. That's badass. So, super nice dude. I don't think he's ever raised his hand in anger even though he's uh, part of the police. Well, I don't know a whole lot about jiu-jitsu. It's one of those things I'm, I'm just not knowledgeable on. But, it you know, in, in pop culture with, you know, listening to Joe Rogan and – you know, Tim Kennedy and all these guys who know what the hell they're talking about when it comes to MMA and martial arts and stuff like that. They all say that if you want to teach your kids something that'll make them never bullied, put them in jujitsu. Because it teaches you an unfair way. We have a common conception. Back in the day, when you squared up, it was just punching. Yeah. You boxed. Yeah, you boxed. What Gracie Byer teaches you is unconventional fighting. It's the same thing that the military trains you. Okay. So when you go into the Marine Corps, there's three different belts. Same thing with Gracie Barra, but you have seven or eight different belts, depending mm-hmm. on which which way you go. If you're a kid, there's more. Yeah. But it's all the same concept. You are fighting to win. You're not fighting for points. Yeah. You're not fighting for anything other than to win. And that's what they teach you, to win. Well, the first thing she did when she came home was she said, hey, Dad, let me show you something. Okay, turn around, and she jumped on my back, and she was like, backpack, and, mm-hmm. like, locked her hands and, and like, dug her leg – her she dug her feet into my legs and in my hips. And, and she I, grapevined you. Yeah, I was like, I can't 
Like, no. get get off of me. Like, get no, off of me. There is no – once – they call it a grapevine, a reverse grapevine. Once she hooks in, once she hooks her heels in and she wraps, there's no way to get Yeah, her I couldn't shake her, man. I, you know, I'm like I'm, – I'm a 200-pound man. I couldn't get her off my back. I mean, I could have smashed her on the wall or something, but I'm not going to do that. But, yeah, you know, but she's probably tough enough to be able to deal with that. So, you know, I think just attention with with kids. That's the number one thing. You give them your attention. Pay attention to them. And you can't do it 100% of the time. You can't just give them attention. And that's – while I do agree that they need attention, you have to give them your time. Your effort, yeah. your knowledge. Yeah. There's so much that goes into a kid because kids are like sponges all the way up until they reach teenage, and then all of a sudden they're 30, which is when I really want to stop dealing with it. Like, I love kids until they reach that age where the phone takes over. Yeah. You can't, like, you actually have to text them in the yeah. and talk to them. But for all intents and purposes, you are right. They need the attention. But more than that, they need the love. They need the support. They need the knowledge. Because you are training your kids. You have five kids. You are training those kids to take over. Mm. You raise kids. It doesn't matter whether you raise them to be garbage men. It doesn't matter whether they're doctors, astronauts, you know, whatever end of the spectrum in. You just want them to succeed. And you want them to do well. And you want them to be smarter than you were. Absolutely. As a parent, this much I know. I don't have kids, so I'll probably get bashed in this in the comments at some point. I don't have kids, but I'm smart enough to know that as a parent, you want your child to do better than you do. Yes, absolutely. So the cool thing is, you got five chances. <laughs> I know, man. I joke about that, but uh, uh, Jay, or Mr. Salty here may say he's uh, not the best, but... Mr. Salty's a solid dude. Appreciate him, man. His wife is one hell of a woman, and they will be five very successful Thanks, kids. And, you know, one of the things is uh, about, about kids, and, and they, you're right. You want them to take over. They will take over. I want them to be a 100 million times more successful than I ever dreamt about being, right? And, you know, you just – you can't really, in my opinion, you know, a lot. I know a lot of parents probably do push kids in certain directions, but in my opinion, you can't push them to do like I, – I do want my kids to be a part of the maritime industry, but you can't uh, – we're going to take a quick break. Okay, cool, and uh, I'll keep going. I do want my kids to be a part of the maritime industry, but you can't push them or force them or back them into a corner – and set these expectations for them to be a part of the maritime industry. It's like, you know, because I, as a kid, very much felt that, you know, to where I had no other options. There was no creativity involved in, you know, what was Mr. Salty going to do when he grew up? It was, hey, you're going to grow up and you're going to be a tugboater and this is what you're going to do and X, Y, and Z. And, and uh, that's the end of the story. Well, it comes down to... It comes down to where it's different times. When you and I grew up, it was different times. Now, kids have the option to do whatever they want to do. Yeah, they very much can. We're going to take a quick break and a head break, and we're going to be back in three, two, and one. And we're back. So, arcade story, bring my boy to the arcade, 
and it's like an old school arcade that they've set up just right around the corner over in Webster. It's called uh, like Arcade Player One or something like that. And it's a cool concept. You pay $15, you get in. It's an all-day pass. So you can stay there as long as you want. The games don't cost quarters. So all you're paying is your like cover fee to be in there. And my son finds a Mortal Kombat game. And I'm like, and it was the, it was Mortal Kombat number one. And I'm like, bet, okay. So I've got this shit. I'm gonna teach this boy a lesson. And he's like, I'm gonna kick your ass, Dad. So he get he you know he picks his player or whatever. And I I don't remember all the moves. I can't do fatalities and shit like that, like all the cool kids at the arcade back in the '90s. However, I do remember how to do the one like uh like spear move with Scorpion and the the icicle move with Sub Zero. Back back forward. And he it blew his mind. He was like, "How are you doing that? What are you doing?" And I would kick his ass every time. And it was a good feeling, man, to like educate him because when it comes to modern games, he's leaps and bounds ahead of me. But when it comes to these old school arcade games, because back in the nineties, my parents used to drop me off at the arcade in the mall over there at Baybrook, and and that was my babysitter. You know, they would leave me with like fifteen bucks or whatever, and I would stay there for two or three hours. And playing Time Crisis and, you know, Bang, Bang, Bang and all that stuff, Mortal Kombat. And I actually sat down. I started a game. Uh, oh, what was that game? Soul Calibur. And I, it was like Soul Calibur 3 or some shit like that. And I made it to the final boss, and I beat the final boss all on one life. Never had to restart. And my son looked at me when I was done. He was like, Dad, did you just beat an old-fashioned arcade game? And I was like, yeah, I, I, I think I did. I think I just beat it. The credits are rolling. He was like, that is some cool shit. And I was like, you know, that's, that's cool, man. I'm impressing my, my 11-year-old son. That's pretty cool. It was a good feeling. Keep in mind, 20 more years down the road, he's going to be showing you how to do something on some kind of tablet or something. Dude, the VR, have you seen the Oculus stuff? <sighs> yeah, but I'm not, I'm not into video games like I used to be. Yeah. The boxing on Oculus, try it out. When Pornhub comes out with Oculus, I'll give it a try. <laughs> Fair enough, man. So where are we at? Um, you were you were telling me a story a little while ago. So uh, guy sitting in an office. Ah, oh, we're skipping straight to this one. We're just gonna gloss over the fifty cal. Oh All no, right. dude, we gotta talk about the fifty. We'll cal. talk about the fifty cal after after this. There. Okay, so I was working for this company, and this guy he kept swearing up and down that he was gonna come in and shoot up the office. Nobody really paid attention to him. He was an employee. He was disgruntled. You know, like we all get sometimes. Of course, I've never threatened to shoot anybody. In an office, anyway. And it just, it was just one of those things. Like, nobody really paid attention to him. Until finally one day, he come in there with a Colt Python, lit up the office, laid down six rounds. That's crazy, man. He, uh, he, he didn't get anybody. Nobody got injured. Nobody nothing. He just laid them down. And, yeah, it, it became a whole thing. So, this leads into a whole mental health thing. Yeah. Like, if you're that upset about your job and you're that miserable, please, dear God, just pick another career path or seek help or something. Do something. Something. Besides that. Yeah. And this is kind of odd for me to say, considering most of my life is based around violence. And I actually do enjoy violence to a certain extent. Not so much as I got older, but it just it just doesn't solve anything. I mean, if you're hurting, you need to get it out. You, know, you need to. There's there's outlets, man. 
Yeah. You gotta get the help. And one of the things is, is like when you're in the industry, you're alpha. Like we run with alphas. Even the women are alpha. Like it's, you know, you, you, you're 100% on board all the time and you don't want to appear weak. Well, we're human. They're, you don't get the luxury of living a life twice. What you're gifted with is what you got. And nobody knows how long you're here. You, there's no expiration date on our bottoms. Yeah. So if you're feeling that miserable and you're unhappy, please get help. Please get some medication or please pick a different career path. One or the other, any other, any combination of just please talk to somebody. There's violence very seldom is the answer. And we're at a time and age where mental health is premium, especially in times like this with COVID. Mm. I mean, your mental health is deteriorating because you're not socializing. Yeah. You know, for those of us that have families, you're with your family all the time now. And for some people, that's a shock. Yeah. And life has changed as we know it. And with all the resources we have right now, it just... There's honestly no excuse. Yeah. The, the excuse of, oh, well, I can handle it with this no longer. Yeah. Yeah, and definitely it's it, it's something that's <clears throat> on people's minds these days with getting stuck on ships, getting stuck on boats, and everything in between. And, um, you know, um, like he's saying, man, special case saying violence is not the answer, and, you know, rethink that shit. And that's coming from me. That's saying something. Yeah. So moving forward, I know it's a touchy topic with a lot of people, but guns. We're in Texas, and everybody left, right, and center is is a fan of guns here in the state of Texas for the most part. And uh, you've got some badass guns, man. <laughs> so <laughs> on the break, you were like, hey, check this out. I have never held one until just a few minutes ago. There's only so many made. It was a uh, made by Magnum Research, which is was originally an Israeli company. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. And it was a Desert Eagle in 50 caliber AE, 50 AE. And the bullets are they look like a like a midget dick. And that is gold plated. It, it was gold plated. The I mean, it, it, beautiful, beautiful gun. I mean, and the slide was actually. I mean, it's a fucking man's gun too. It, it was it was hard to rack the slide. It was. It's incredibly hard to find a place around here that lets me shoot it. Really? So the slide would be a lot less stiff if I could find a place to shoot it. Mm -hmm. I don't own property where I can go out because the fifty the fifty round out of a handgun, it's a very slow round. It's it's big. It's cumbersome. It's slower than a forty five round. Mm -hmm. So it's not the distance. It's what happens when it hits. Even even like what you saw in there were hollow guns. Yeah. Even if I were to shoot a target round out of there, it's still going to put a huge chunk in the backside of wherever it lets me shoot it. So I don't own property. I the gun ranges around here won't let me shoot it. So yeah. It's it's a lot of pistol. And uh it was badass, man. I mean, that's a hell of a pistol. Uh, more like a hand cannon. 
Yeah, well, if you don't make the first seven rounds out of the barrel, you can turn around and use it as a baseball bat. <laughs> Fair enough, man. <clears throat> so, as a uh, as a guy who knows what he's talking about, if it's the end of the world, if it's the apocalypse, what kind of gun are you using? If zombies are beating down your front door, what are you using? Well, you're assuming there's enough ammunition. So... Zombies beating down the door. I mean, first off, take the high ground. You don't shoot unless you have to. Conserve your ammo because you only got so much of it. Secondly, you, know, you don't want to have to get into hand to hand combat. So, if I had to pick and choose three weapons to take with me, well, we'll call it four. If I had to take four weapons, I would probably take I'd probably take a seven millimeter for long distance. Probably an Uzi for close up because you can put down a lot of rounds with an Uzi and it's nine mil. It's just a it's just a solid weapon. I would probably choose the SIG P three twenty for handgun. And definitely a K bar. Nice. You okay. A, you can get a lot of shit done with a K bar. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Spoken like a true marine. Well, the the man who invented that knife, he was very conscientious as to its use. You can use it as a bayonet. You can use it as a silent option. It, you can see. So you can even make coffee with it. Really? Oh, How the hell do you make coffee with it? So you take your helmet, you heat it up with the water, you put the coffee grounds in it, you spare. Okay. So when you're about to make it, you take the knife edge on the edge of the uh, edge of the helmet and then pour it in the cup. Keeps oh, out. okay. Okay. I just think it's so multifaceted. Like it was the greatest weapon ever invented. K-Bar. And for those of y'all who don't know, the K-Bar is a uh, like a um, hand-to-hand fighting knife used by the Marine Corps. It's a... It's a variant of a Bowie knife. Which is all American. Dude, speaking of Bowie knife, I'm wearing their shirt right now. I gotta give this company a fucking shout out, man. It's called Zombie Tools uh, out of Montana in the United States. And they take, it's like 5150 steel, like railroad track steel. And they make sword, mostly swords, but they make some knives. And uh, for my birthday, my wife got me, it's called the Felon. It's a it's a Texas style Jim Bowie knife, and made out of this railroad steel. It's like unbreakable. To break this shit, you gotta like swing it as hard as you can at concrete repeatedly for half an hour. I mean, it's just unbelievably tough. So check them out if you like knives. Uh, Zombie Tools out of Montana. I think I actually have one of their knives. They make them by hand, dude. So when you place an order, it's gonna take three to four months. For you to get your your uh, knife or your sword. Enough say that. I think I got it through cut through Cutco. Okay, Cutco. Yeah, Cutco comes out with those real fancy cooking knives. When I was married, we got a set, and the woman I was married to was like, "You want this? Damn right, I want that." Hell yeah. So it's like OD. It's like zombie green, like that real neon green. Yeah. And it's gonna take a real big blade. I don't know. Actually, okay. It's pretty badass. So, my favorite. So if I had to pick three. I would have to go four, okay. So if I had to pick four, 
uh, for for my knife, I'm gonna have to go with my zombie tool spelling. Badass, bad to the bone. It's like a Fair sm- enough. it's like a small sword. But being Texas, got to go with a Bowie knife. Um, my uh, one of my favorite guns is the Mossberg 590A1. It's a shotgun, a bayonet lug. It's got a bayonet that you slap on the end if you need to. Yeah, I think it's uh, made to Navy spec, so it only has like uh, they're in their trials and only have like two failures or something for three thousand rounds. Uh, it's bad to the bone, real thick barrel, so it won't get. Uh, the barrel won't get bent if you like slam it in a uh, in a hatch, like close a hatch on it or something like that. Anyways, badass shotgun, bad to the bone, heavy as fuck, but badass. You run out of ammo, you can beat somebody with it. Uh, my favorite rifle I own is kind of a toss up, so it's either between my uh, I've got a Krebs Custom AK-47. It's built on an Arsenal like 106, whatever, blah 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 which they're Bulgarian-made AK-47s that are imported. And then Krebs Custom takes it and, like, polishes all the horns, you know, takes all the sharp edges off. They chopped it down a couple inches and then, like, welded the flash hider on it. So it's uh, kind of changes the balance point. It's a, it's a really smooth operating AK. Love AKs. I'm an AK guy primarily because ammo's cheap and affordable, and as a poor deckhand, I could afford the AK rounds. You make me completely flaccid. And then uh, AK, really? That's what you're going with? I, dude, I love AK. All the rifles man. in the world. And um, and and then okay, but it's an even toss-up between that and my Springfield Armory uh, M1 SOCOM M1 A1. What, what do they call it? Anyways, it's like a like an M14. It's a civilian version of the of an M14. They change the name of it every month. Yeah. It's like M1, A1, SOCOM, whatever. They Anyways. come out with new. There's it comes out so fast. Now, like back in the day, it was a year in between models because yeah. they took the time to research it, and they would fix things. Now it comes out like every couple of months, it's got different names. Holy shit, slow down, let's make some quality shit here. Yeah. And that's the, like, I bust your balls about being a, a AK fan, but no matter what AK you go with, they're all top notch because it's all built on the same principle. Yeah. When, when they made that weapon back in, what, like, 1917 or 19... No, it was, like, 1943, something like that. I think it was before that. It was Kalashnikov. Well, 47, so it was made in 19, <clears throat> 1947 is when the model was originally adopted by the Soviet government. That's right, before that day, yeah. the PPSH. Yeah, PPSH and the Mosin Nagant. Oh my god, I would give a test over that PPSH. It, it had a fire rate of like 100 rounds. Burp gun. Yeah. So, funny story. So you mentioned the Russian burp gun. My my grandfather on my mother's side, he was a he was an MP in the U.S. Army during the Korean War. And uh, he carried a... He actually dropped his M1 Garand and picked up a... He called it a Russian burp gun, but it was mm-hmm. a PPS, Russian PPSH from, from a dead uh, gorilla. They used those all the way up through Korea. Yep. And uh, he, he said it was just a reliable thing, and it would spit out rounds. You know, he, he said he only used it a handful of times, but when he had to, it just it just spit lead. Well, that's what it was made to do. It was made to put as much lead downrange as possible in a short amount of time. Yeah. And it, it's a sexy gun. It, even if you look at it today, it's kind of modeled on our old Thompsons. Mm-hmm. If you look at it, if you were to just solid the barrel so when you look at it they have a flared barrel yeah and fluted 
if you were to just take that off of there, they would look almost exactly like the Thompson. Hell yeah. It took drum and stick, but it, it fired at a lot faster rate. Yep. And it was cheap as fuck to make. It made out of stamped steel. Anyways. Yeah. One of my favorite topics, guns. I, I've never talked about it on the podcast, but uh, you know what? Left, right, center, doesn't matter. You, you can get on board. Come to Texas and, and shoot some guns. Well, you, most of the people I run into, their fear of guns comes from never even seeing one in person. Yeah. Or if they saw one, it was at the barrel end of them getting robbed. So, when it comes to guns, I always try to advocate for an open mind because it isn't for a lot of people. Mm. And that's fine. You don't want guns, that's perfectly fine. But those of us that have them, I mean, you're a whole lot safer when we do. Yeah, absolutely. And that's it's a personal choice. I think right now, people just anymore, they just don't respect personal choices. And it, it, it it's frustrating. Like, I shouldn't have to give up my guns because you feel like they shouldn't exist. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I'd let you have your kids, even though I don't approve of them. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, man. You know, you, you're totally right about the whole personal choice thing and you know, I, I think mariners are kind of predisposed to individuality. Because we're exposed to it more often. We're exposed to so much. And you can live your whole life sheltered all the way up until you graduate high school. The minute you step into the maritime industry, like I, I work with people from Africa. I work with people from the Eastern Bloc. I work with people that live on the East Coast, the West Coast, Australia. And... Like I said earlier, it's a melting pot, and it's it's crazy when I think about it now when I talk to you. But for me, when I go to work, it's just another day. And I completely forget that that's not normal. No, it's not. And I kind of take that for granted. I mean, to a certain extent. But ordinarily, day to day, they're just another member of the crew. They're part of my crew. They're part of the team. They're part of the company, and it's. But at the end, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to personal choice, and that's one of the things that I learned about on the boats is, you don't fault somebody for personal choice. And for all of you out there in podcast land on ship docking tubs, there is an amazing amount of ball busting that goes on, because it passes time. Yeah. It also helps us alleviate stress. So when we pick on each other, it's a way of relieving stress. Or, you know, frustration or any of the range of emotions that we're feeling. Because there's a lot of downtime at some points during the watch that you have to occupy it. There's only so many moves you can watch, only so many books you read. You need that human interaction. Mm-hmm. And For the record, the last time I was on a boat with uh, Special K here, he put on Deliverance. And I had never seen that movie before. And, you know, I I remember, like, halfway through the movie, I was like, what the fuck are we watching here? But it was a good movie, and, uh, you know, it had lessons. Yeah, life is one giant lesson. That day you learned how not to get raped. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I learned why I shouldn't squeal like a piggy. But 
in all seriousness, man, I, I guess we're kind of we're, we're coming to a close here. I've got some questions I want to ask you before we leave. Okay, I've got some throwdown questions that I ask most people who are on the podcast. Um, for for a seafarer, how do you deal with Christmas when you're away from home? Oh, man. Uh, I'm kind of fortunate in the fact now that I don't have a wife or kids. So what I do is I always buy gifts for my crew. Uh, hopefully this doesn't come out too much before Christmas and my crew doesn't hear it, but they got sunglasses this year. <laughs> okay. So I, I try That's to, cool, man. Oh uh, yeah. Uh I try to treat my try to treat my crew pretty good. So I just bring Christmas to the boat. That's cool, I man. Can. We always have dinner, we you know, I give them gifts. Uh, we hang out usually in the galley. Sometimes we watch movies and then I know this year, since we're not on the boat for Christmas, we're celebrating New Year's. Okay. And uh, we've all decided that we're just going to eat junk food, like wings and nachos. Oh, and nice. It's going to be a fat boy throwdown. So do, do you do the uh, the cabbage and black-eyed peas, green cabbage and black-eyed peas for prosperity and good luck for New Year's? Uh, No, I do this thing called praying. Okay. It seems to be a lot more effective. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Okay, uh, what is your favorite place you've ever been to in the world? Mm. Man, I would have to say Newcastle, Australia. No shit. So Newcastle, Australia was one of the first settlements over there, and uh, I was fortunate enough to go a couple years ago. Uh, I didn't pay for it. Obviously, I can't afford it. And I got to go, and I just my my days consisted of exploring the city. I would jump on the train, or I would get an Uber, which they have Uber over there, which is super dope. So they don't have drugstores either. They have chemists. Okay. So that's all another story for all there. But, uh, yeah, like I went to the oldest church over there. I got pictures of me standing in the bell tower. Wow. You go all the way up in the bell, which reminds me, they're not made for six-foot people. Okay. When I went up there, I had to lay against the wall and climb the spiral. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty intense. And as I get older, I find that I'm, like, more claustrophobic, whereas when I was younger, I didn't have that problem. Yeah. So as I get older, like, I don't like tight spaces. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I had a little mini freak out before I got to the top. There may have been some alcohol involved, maybe. But, uh, yeah, and... Newcastle, Australia. Yeah, and... Is that, is that the north of Australia? The No, it's uh, 90 miles north of Sydney. Okay. So you got Brisbane, Newcastle, okay, and uh, yeah, it's it's an amazing place. I got to dive on the Great Barrier Reef, which I'll tell you all right now does not look like it does in any picture book or on the news. <clears throat> it's bleached out. It's dying. That reef is dying. Really? Yes. When when I went and dove on it, and we dove certain. You know, different parts of the reef. Yeah. It was great. There was no color. There was no life. There was no nothing. It was dying. The Great Barrier Reef is dying. And the tour guides told us why. It's as human beings, we are polluting the water. Mm. And sun bleaching. I mean, it's not all our fault. The sun's bleaching it out. And, you know, migratory fish and such. <clears throat> but, yeah. It, uh, 
that actually broke my heart because every textbook I ever read showed a bright, colorful reef. Yeah. And it's... I've always wanted to go to Australia. Saw a great white. Really? Yeah. While you were in the water? No, I wasn't in the water. Oh, I was going to say, fuck that. <laughs> no, I took the ferry across from Newcastle to the town that's across the river. I can't remember the name of it. And I was walking out on one of their jetties because it has a real nice uh, lighthouse that I wanted to get to take a picture. Yeah. And I was walking out there and I watched it surface. Okay. The only reason I knew it was a great white because when it surfaced, I was actually saw the, the face. Holy and I saw the shit. Fin. So here's the thing about Australian beaches. When you go, they show you this big giant board of every shark that could eat you. Holy shit. Yeah. What's also really cool about Newcastle, on the shore side, because you have the inland and then you have the shore side, mm -hmm. they have natural baths. So when the tide rises, it fills these baths. And you can play in there safely. Yeah. Because it keeps the shark up. Yeah. And then once the tide goes back out, everybody leaves. It's uh, The food was great. The people were great. I actually ended up going to get my hair cut there. And uh, they're like, hey, why don't you come back later? Go next door. There's, uh, you know, old-time speakeasy. Are they less gosh? They're like, yeah. You know, basically you pull up, you dial this number, and they let you in. They buzz you in like an old-time speakeasy. So I go up there, me being an American, not realizing there's country codes. So I'm like trying to punch in on my phone and keep in mind this is like a random ass Thursday. So I'm punching the code, punching the code, well it wouldn't work. I couldn't make the call. I couldn't get in. So the bartenders have been watching me do this. And they finally took mercy on me and they let us in. So we go in. And we were the only people in there almost all night. We stayed there till 2 a.m. and got plastered. And we had the most fun. I got pictures of it. Nice. We had the most fun ever, although I don't really remember walking back to Liverpool. But, yeah, it, I drank so much scotch. Like, we just did one giant taste. And they started, because when you go in there, they have a ladder. Mm -hmm. And this ladder is kind of like being a whiskey cake. It goes up. Okay. So we started at Top Shell, we just kept going down. Damn. And at one point, I remember drinking something that was on fire. Like a flaming Dr. Pepper. But better. Yeah. Fair enough. And they had a piano. I love the piano, especially when I'm drinking. So, Australia. Who'd you go to Australia with? The people. <laughs> See a man about a horse. Yeah, some people that can afford it and I can't. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. When you go, which we will, how do you want the world to remember you? Well, first off, let's let's understand this. When I go out, I want to be sliding in my coffin at least at a 35-degree angle into the grave. Okay. You know, I... And as I told you earlier, like, finding, refinding my religion and all that, like, it kind of makes you realize, really, what are you doing? And while I don't regret anything I've done in my life, I am more picky and choosy as to what I'm doing with it. But I've never lost that, that zest for life. I'm just more conscientious about how I spend my energy. 
Yeah. I don't drink nearly as much. I don't go out nearly as much. I find that I'm doing more charitable things. Um, I'm spending more time with people. So when I go, honestly, it's not about how I want to be remembered. Because let's face it, the people that are going to remember remember me, they're going to die too. They're going to get And that's fine. I don't particularly need to leave a mark. What I need to do is be the best person I can be with my time. I don't want to be remembered. I want my deeds to be remembered. Hmm. I want charity to continue. I want the spirit of Christmas to continue. All the things that I love that I promote in my personal life, like Christmas, charity, uh, Catholicism, model shipbuilding, all that stuff, German beer drinking. I want that to continue. I want the next generation to enjoy it as much as we do. Hmm. Yeah, everybody wants to be remembered for some Patton is remembered for slapping soldiers and winning wars. That's fine. That was his legacy. Not for me. You wanna you wanna do something, you wanna be remembered for something, that's fine. That's a personal choice. You want to seek glory? That's fine. But at the end of the day, does it really leave the world any better? Mm. Did all that really make it worth it? Mm. Not really. Didn't change anything. You won a war. You stopped that. But you, you don't hear anything about rebuilding. That is profound stuff, man. Where in the textbooks do you ever see Anything about rebuilding? Not, not a whole lot. Just, it, it's, it's all about, at least for me, it comes down to humanity. We do a lot of fucked up shit to each other, and we take exactly zero credit for it. Like, when you leave here, as soon as you step outside my door, I can rob you. You could. I could. But humanity dictates that it's not exactly a good idea. That's not a good thing, yeah. No. And we need more humanity. Yeah, fair we enough. We need more humanity than we than we need wars. And that's that's the kind of legacy I wish to leave. So first thing in the morning, I saw this quote. And this quote really stuck with me for some reason. And I, I texted it to uh, some people that I, I really care about, and I want to repeat it here. And uh, this is the quote. Beauty I have learned from the ugly, charity from the unkind, and peace from the turmoil of the world. Frederick Ward Cates. I thought it was a really special quote because I, I think that, um, especially in this day and age, people don't appreciate the ugliness of life. People would be surprised as to how easy it is to take away. Everybody is capable. In the right circumstances, everybody's capable of taking away. And I would, you would for your family, your wife would. Even Johnny No Gun Owner would take a life if they had to. Everybody's capable. Some more than others, but everybody's capable. As part of being human. But what you don't hear about is we're all capable of love. 
Yeah. We're all capable of learning. Yeah. We're all capable of charity. We're all capable of so many other things as human beings. You know, when we were put here, we weren't just giving specific tasks, specific tasks. Like we were given a life. Yeah. How we choose to live it is on us. Hmm. If you want to spend your life being a hard ass and going to prison and you know inflicting pain, that is a choice. That is a lifestyle choice. You want to be charitable. You want to be, you know, a man of the a man of the people. That's another lifestyle choice. Hmm. So we all make choices. Fair enough. But everybody is capable. Be it a murder, be it a charity, be it a blow. Everybody is capable of every single one of those at the attributes that make us human. The question is, which one do you choose to embrace? That is very profound. I like to mix it up. If you could only give one piece of advice to the world, what would it be? Make sure your wiener's in your pants before you zip up. Because Levi's are unforgiving. All right. No, <laughs> the one piece of advice. Not what I expected. <clears throat> okay. No, the one piece of advice I would leave is treat others like you'd want to be treated. The golden rule. I mean, in this day and age, that is more profound than anything else. It really is. Yeah. It. A lot of times on the boats, we talk about experiences we've had while we were all, and we, at least on my boat, we call them civilians, like normal people that don't work with us. And it's, it's hard because they're not us. People that don't work out there, they're not us. They will never understand what we go through. They'll never understand the lifestyle. That's why we tend to gravitate towards each other, even as, as friends. You know, we don't have too many outsider friendships. And it's all about treating others the way you want to be treated, whether they're your friends from the boats or civilians, but I do know that we have a lot harder time dealing with civilians. Yeah. Bless their hearts. Is there anything else you would like to talk about before we go? Oh, quite a bit. I'm going to need another beer, so uh, we'll be right back. We'll be right back after this message. So, in case y'all were wondering, the reason there's so many breaks is I'm a smoker, and I can't sit here for so I apologize for that and uh, mystery salt. Mystery salt. So a few minutes ago we were just talking about you know childhood of Baltimore and JB was just telling me a story and the point of that story is it's a very dangerous place. Now I don't want you all to think that you can't go there or you're going to get immediately mugged or shot when you go. Baltimore itself is a beautiful place. It's a great place to visit if you stay in the tourist areas. But the thing about that is, like, you go out towards the mountain area, like Claremont and all that, it's beautiful. In the Appalachian Mountains and all that, it's beautiful. There's not just, when you go to Maryland, it's not just the city. They have Christmas tree farms. They have the Amish. The Amish. Amish. The Amish are, uh, they're different, but, you know, you can get, Deli meat from them. Here's where you tell the story about how you fell in love with an Amish girl. Uh, no. No, <laughs> I just made that up. Sorry. I, I fell in love with their quilts. Okay. And furniture. All right. Quilts and furniture. Close enough. 
Yeah, we actually Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is where the the uh, Pennsylvania Dutch loop. Okay. We were only an hour from there, so we used to go up there and get all our meat from there. Okay. That was the best quality. In uh, you know, outside of you know, it's not like you're going to go to Safeway or like A and P, which is what what's back home. You went to the Amish, so the Amish figured out a way to get around their their religion to where they could get to the markets in Baltimore. So that actually got even better as we grew up, but their quality, you can't beat their quality. You know, nice. For people, for people that are stuck in the 1850s, they make some nice shit. Yeah, they do. So. Well, cool, man. Last question I've got for you. Do you have any good ghost stories? Oh, man. Uh, so I told you we moved out to Baltimore County, and we moved to a place called Fort Howard. My mom got a job being a ter- uh <laughs> My mom got a job being a caretaker at this place called Fort Howard Park. For those of y'all that don't know anything about history, Fort Howard Park was where the British landed for the War of 1812. There's actually a battle encasement there at a fort where they had the guns, they had all the powder and all that stored, you know. All the concrete still stands. Uh, they... The government used it in the 60s as a training ground before they sent people to Vietnam. So, yeah. Damn. Every year they have the uh, reenactments. And it, it's an entire weekend. So they have people that show you how to make bricks back in the day, uh, pies, uh, food. They have reenactments like with the muskets mm-hmm. like they had the replica muskets uniforms the cannon it's actually a pretty wild time it's a lot of history in that area but yeah general ross landed there with his troops and marched all the way to dc damn burned down the white house well i mean it was pink at the time so why not <laughs> that's the only color they had no shit pink I mean, they had dyes and stuff, but, you know, when you're talking about paint, there's only a handful of colors. Yeah. You know, a lot of the stuff came from beetroot or potatoes or, you know, whatever, whatever they could find to make a pigment. Damn. Paint is coming along the way. Oh, yeah. For those of you all out on ships, you all know all about paint. Yeah, <laughs> how to mix it. Two-part paint, one-part paint. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this was the, the legit paint where they just rubbed a bunch of stuff together and it came out whatever color and they were like, hm, all right, we'll paint this. And that's how that happened. Pretty cool, man. Well, Special K, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a, a really awesome episode of the podcast. I've really enjoyed it. Kind of spanned a little bit of everything, you know, uh, which which is a Mariner's life, you know, a little bit of everything. So uh, everybody out there, podcast land you know you sit here you interview everybody let's ask you some of these questions ask me ask what me. is your ghost story my favorite or ghost story you know i've i've told my favorite ghost story before there was a there's there is a tugboat called the deacon and i swear to god the deacon is haunted okay and uh i remember being uh, a mate on this tugboat and i would stay up late at night and write in a, in a diary. It, it was my diary. And I would, you know, in between watches, whatever, you know, you're kind of up anyways. Your watch doesn't end for a couple more hours. Might as well stay up anyways. 
and uh, you know I'd shut the tugboat down you know we tied up in a little quiet spot and uh, this happened several different times and I would be writing in my diary and this one particular time I remember um, I'm sitting there and I would leave my door open right because I'm still on watch <laughs> you know what I'm gonna say right oh yeah and and somebody would walk past me and uh, somebody walked up to the wheelhouse and I mean, I swear to God, somebody walked past my room and went to the wheelhouse. And this is, you know, probably 3.30 a.m., 0300, you know, um, 0330. And I'm like, okay, and I'm writing in my diary. So, I, you know, and I see somebody walk by. I hear their footsteps, and I hear the footsteps go up to the wheelhouse. And I don't really think anything of it. I, in my mind, it was the engineer, who I'm, is a very dear friend of mine, Old Man Sonny. And... Uh, you know, I'm like, well, that's weird. You know, I guess he's just up. Maybe he's he's got to pee a lot in the nighttime, whatever, and, and he's going upstairs to maybe call his wife, make a phone call. I don't know, read the news, whatever. And uh, you do realize Sonny didn't even know how to operate a smartphone, right? I know. Right? I realize that now. And like half an hour went by, and, you know, I'm like, well, who the fuck is up? You know, because they never came down, so... I walk up the steps to the wheelhouse, which are, you know, they're, they're, it's a pretty tall, it's a tall stairway. So I, I walk upstairs and nobody's there. And I'm like, whoa. Dun, dun, dun. I'm like, what the fuck, man? I, <laughs> who the fuck is it? Are they outside? So I'm looking all around. Nobody's out on deck. Nobody's out there on the boat deck. Uh, they're, they're not out there uh, down on the bow, not on the stern. So I, I go back in the wheelhouse, walk down the stairwell. And I'm like looking in everybody's room, and the, the deckhand's asleep. Uh, the captain's obviously asleep because he loves to sleep. And I look in old man Sonny's room, and he's sound asleep. And, you know, I go and sit down back at my desk, and I'm like, well, who the fuck did I just saw? Who, who did I see walk up into the wheelhouse? I have no idea. Uh, super creepy. Awesome. So, all right, we'll move on to another one. What's the craziest thing you've seen at sea? The craziest thing I've seen at sea? The craziest thing I've ever seen at sea was back when I was an apprentice. I was on a ship called the Liberty Glory. And uh, it was a grain ship, and we were going to Aqaba, Jordan. I had no idea what was going on, really. You know, I'm just an apprentice, work, you know, working in this department, working in that department. <clears throat> and I'm sitting down eating dinner. And some of the ABs are, are fucking with this old man who is another AB. And his name was Franklin Akins. And uh, he's, he's an older African guy. And they, they were like talking shit to this dude at dinner time and, you know, like making jokes, whatever, kind of like haha, funny type stuff. And out of the blue, this old man stands up and he fucking takes his steak knife and he, he jams it into the neck of this, of this other AB who's making jokes. And he like puts the tip of his steak knife to this guy's neck, and he says, "You, you know, and his mouth's kind of full of food." And he's like, "You, you think this shit's funny? You want to keep making jokes? You know, get, make another fucking joke, make another fucking joke." And I'm like, "Oh my god, I, you know, I'm thinking this is like prison, you know, it's like an episode <laughs> of Oz." And <laughs> I'm like, so after that, I, I started carrying my pocket knife everywhere, and uh, I thought it was like prison. I thought in any moment somebody may pull a knife. And cut your throat. Well, I mean, realistically, it can happen very quickly. Yep. 
All right. What is the favorite place you have been to? Favorite, my favorite place that I've been to in the world. I would have to say in Holland, I went to a little town. Uh, we, the ship I was on, the Sealand Performance, pulled into uh, Rotterdam, and we got uh, a ride from the Siemens Center to, uh, I don't know where the fuck we were. And then I took another taxi ride to a little town called Brule or Brule or some kind of shit like that. And uh, it was like an old Spanish town in Holland. And uh, I had a blast. Everybody wanted to talk to the American. And uh, that was probably my favorite place. Fair enough. All right. You asked me this earlier. I don't think anybody's ever asked you. At least I've never heard it. How do you want the world to remember you? How do I want the, the How world does to Mr. Me? Salty want to be remembered? Oh, man, that's a tough question. Um, well, don't worry, your wife's going to tell you. <laughs> I want to be remembered as, as an honest person that cared about my shipmates and, um, and did everything that I could to, uh, to, to stand up for people. That's that's how I want to be remembered. So for everybody out in podcast land, I've been reading some of his questions, so I'm going to ask one of my own. Okay, go it's ahead. not on the list. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? 10 years, damn. Um, you know, professionally, it, it's familiar. funny, it's funny you ask, man, because I was I was talking to somebody that I work with the other day and I see that hairline receding in 10 years. I know, man. I, I'm going to be an old Son of a bitch. Yeah, you gray. No, you got them I wings know, like Polly Walnuts. <laughs> Fair enough, man. You know, there's there's an old story. Uh, there's a tree planted in a, in a courtyard at the Alamo in San Antonio, Texas. And it was planted by an Englishman. He was an English seafarer. And he planted that tree, the story goes, according to the tour guide, that, um, you know, he kept – he was on a ship that, um, that docked in Galveston. He got off the ship when he was done sailing. And he started walking west, and he didn't quit walking until somebody didn't recognize his his sea stories, and um, and didn't understand what the you know anything about the ocean. So you he, know how long of a walk that is from here to San. That's <laughs> a know. long ass walk. I know. I'm sure he rode a fucking horse or or something, a buggy, whatever. But uh, you know, I feel very much the same way. When I'm done uh, with my career, I want to leave to a place. That is far away from the ocean, and um, in ten years, I would like to see myself maybe in the middle of fucking Arizona or New Mexico or Utah in the desert in a in a place that doesn't even recognize the ocean, and um, you know, be like a fucking horse farmer or a horse rancher or something. I don't know. You know why that's not possible? I don't know, man. Because we're always called back to the sea, well, aren't we? I know. It's a vicious circle. As much as we hate it, we love it. Yeah. And that will always be because it will always and forever be in our hearts. That's true. So you can run, you can hide, but you'll be back, be it a lake, a river, a stream. You guys be back just like the rest that's of us. Right. That's right. I know, man. Well, Even if you've got to go to the toilet just for the run of water. I know. We'll be back. That's profound. Cheers. Cheers. Everybody out there, thanks again to Special K. You can find us on uh, Facebook, JB Salty. You can find me on Twitter. Just look up, uh, I don't know, look up the Ship's Log Podcast or something like that. Uh, you can email me, the Ship's Log Podcast, 
at gmail.com. And uh, more importantly, you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash the ship's log podcast. Uh, just donate three bucks a month. It's, it's not a whole lot. So if you also get time, please check out the West, the Wista, the Facebook page, their website and the charity. I can't remember. Mission move, mission, mission move. move. Please check out mission move. There's so many great options for giving this year. Uh, please support JB Salty and everything he does. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate your time. Yeah, man. I am just a humble servant. And God bless the seafarers who are stuck on ships and boats all around the world and can't get off to be with their families. God bless you all. May their TP and soap be plentiful. Amen. That's about all you had to look forward to. <laughs> we'll catch you next week. <laughs>